time turner. It just doesn't work. It belongs in the museum. It's practically like a Benny Hill episode. Well, who wants to eat crumbs at the bride's hair? Welcome to Up Yours Downstairs, the podcast that's a bit mumsy. I'm Kelly Anakin. And I'm Tom Schneider. We are properly married. I'm afraid we must have different definitions of the word. Which word? Properly or married? Uh, I don't know. I really wish you'd think before you speak. (laughs) You're a real Susan, Tom. (laughs) How dare you? Yeah, well, listen... Nothing happens in this episode, so we've got to get our kicks where we can. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Welcome back, cousins. We're here to discuss the penultimate episode of Downton Abbey, Series 5, Episode 8. Right. Uh, The uh, ultimate non-Christmas episode. My big, fat, non-Jewish wedding. (laughs) Uh, But before we get into that, let's name our cousin of the week. Okay. Cousin Karen writes, Dear Kelly and Tom, I'm late to season five of Downton Abbey. We're currently up to episode six and only recently discovered your podcast. So I suspect someone may have already mentioned this. Nonetheless, my husband and I have noticed that the homely liberal's name, Miss Bunting, is the same as that of the dearly departed original head of fashion on Mr. Selfridge, the one who couldn't get a job without a reference and eventually stopped the London underground by jumping in front of a train while carrying a passive aggressive note to Harry. I like to think that the two characters are distant relatives and that the the story of the elder Miss Bunting's sad fate, fired for stealing to buy medicine for her dying mother, informs the dislike of the younger for the wealthy and her unquenchable anger at class injustice. Be that as it may, the name Bunting seems appropriate in either case, as Bunting is a type of wool fabric suited to an expert in the fashion department, and is also the term for the type of flags, banners, and swags that were in the past particularly associated with political events. Unfortunately, there was no Bunting decorating the hall in Ripon where Tom first met Miss Bunting, but one can't have everything. Best wishes, Cousin Karen. I don't believe anybody has pointed that out. No. Perhaps because we have successfully brainwashed everyone into thinking that Miss Bunting's name is, in fact, the homely liberal. Right. Uh, although, too, I think it's the Yorkshire accent, too. Yeah. Because we hear, you know, a lot of, on Mr. Selfridge, the London, the posh accents. Mm-hmm. Well, not even the posh, just well, the Londoner right, just, accents. Yeah, yeah. Versus the Yorkshire accent, which is Miss Bunting and the Irish accent. Right. Uh, yeah, but thank you very much, Cousin Karen. That yeah, was that's, very insightful that's of some you. Good, that's a good catch. Yeah, again, the telegrams are so great every week. Mm-hmm. I have such a hard time figuring out which one to read. We yeah. had uh, somebody wrote in this week, Cousin Janet pointed out that McGee is actually in the film adaptation of Ragtime playing Evelyn Nesbitt. Wow. Uh, and we missed our opportunity to point that out. Yeah. But I would say I've only read the book of Ragtime and... Uh, the musical. Uh-huh. So, but I mean, the the actual movie falls well within our regular timeline, and it does have McG in it. It's got McG. We could just do, this hiatus, we could just do Summer of McG. <laughs> we do enjoy her. We do. So we'll see how that all works out. Yeah. And don't forget, cousins, to follow us on Twitter at Palm Court Cast. That's the official Twitter handle of our upcoming Mr. Selfridge coverage, The Palm Court, a Mr. Selfridge podcast. That's right. Uh, we did also post on Tumblr, Twitter, and Facebook. Hey, remember how we have a Tumblr? No, I did not. Well, but we then do, I saw that which I, I like, use oh, wow. only when there are pieces of information that are too long to put on Twitter. <laughs> um, anyway, but I pulled the numbers, uh, titles, and release dates of all of our Mr. Selfridge coverage from the past. We'll try to 
to upload those to the new feed as soon as we get the new feed. Right. We don't have the new feed yet. We're working on it. Uh, you know, everything's crazy. Up is down. <laughs> Black is white. Edith's and Mary's living together. <laughs> Uh, but definitely be sure to check that out. We're really excited we are. about the next uh, season of Mr. Selfridge. And judging from the reactions that we've been getting on social media, you guys are as well. Yes. Uh, so, yeah. Let's uh, let's all celebrate together. Yeah. Let's uh, go have some free ice cream with... Uh, <laughs> what, what do we call old Gordon? <laughs> I, I, we'll see again. We were just... Dumb a, Gordon? <laughs> possibly. I think it was Dumb Gordon. I think you're right. Yeah. No, it's insane. No, and we are actually going to re-listen to some of those episodes because we're like, we are like on point for those. So yeah. Let's really make that... Yeah. You know. Let's keep the momentum going. Absolutely. All right. So we're all looking forward to that. Going to nail it all <laughs> together with the Palm Court cast. Right. Okay. I think that's all of the housekeeping. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you would like to contact us, you can write us a telegram. We are... Up yours downstairs at gmail.com. You can send us a carrier pigeon, aka tweet, uh, five Maggie Smiths. That's at the number five Maggie Smiths. Or just search up yours downstairs exclamation point on Facebook. Now that's really all the housekeeping done. Let us, okay. <laughs> all right, guys. This less happens in this episode of Downton Abbey than happened over the entirety of Passions, which was very little. <laughs> very little would happen episode to episode and even in full arcs, you know? Yeah. But just, I mean, nothing new happens in this episode apart from the fact that Rose gets married, mm-hmm. which we all knew was going to happen. And therefore, like, why does, why are we, why are we here? Yeah. We, uh, we found this episode somewhat tedious, but. Let's do our best to have an exciting podcast about it. We will. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll try. We'll try, cousins. You try. Uh, okay, I'll try. <laughs> Callie will just complain. That's how we do puzzles and podcasts. <laughs> That's right. So today's tracking shot is servants walking along in Downton. Thomas is checking them off and instructing one to take things to the wagonette. Is that like a raisinette? <laughs> Possibly. Let's ch- all go to the lobby. <laughs> Let's all go to the lobby. <laughs> Right. They all put some of the packages in a chocolate-coated wagon. (laughs) That gets real sticky on the way to the station. (laughs) But delicious. He uh, gives Carson the inventory, and he gives a copy to Hughes. Patmore and Daisy are working on a fancy wedding cake. Which looks gorgeous. It does. Daisy wonders how they're going to get it to London, but Patmore says there'll be plenty of time for repairs once they get there. Hughes says that she's a real artist and Patmore credits Daisy for it uh, and then asks Hughes what they should take food-wise and what they should buy in London. Hughes says that Patmore will find that most things you can buy in Ripon are also available in London. (laughs) Which I like Daisy enjoying Mrs. Patmore being made fun of there. Patmore says yes, but she just doesn't trust them the same. Daisy asks why Hughes is coming to London and asks if they've replaced Mrs. Butte. Uh, but Patmore says they're not going to be replacing her, and Grantham House will no longer have a permanent housekeeper. That's another clang in the march of time. So I am not sure that Patmore understands how marching works, because it's not very not very clangy. This may explain generally. why her nephew Archie didn't do so well in the army. <laughs> He's like, but when do we start the clanging? <laughs> and they were like, He's gone balmy. <laughs> Dishonorable discharge. <laughs> Shoot him in the face. <laughs> There's no clanging in World War One. <laughs> that's yeah. That's probably how it went. Mm-hmm, I imagine <laughs> it's in the right there in the code of military justice. <laughs> no clanging. <laughs> There'll be no parade. 
college parade <laughs> oh my god guys also if you're new to the podcast maybe we've already said this a you definitely need to watch parades end and then b listen to all of our podcasts about it <laughs> because we quote them to ourselves all the time constantly yeah party <laughs> speaking of uh women that are crazy <laughs> Uh, Rose is showing off an outfit to the women of the family. Is she in her room? I guess so. It's very unclear to me exactly how all this is working. Right. I think they're all still at Downton and they're about to leave. Yeah. Um, but I believe this is her traveling outfit. Yeah. Uh, so they are all like, oh, yeah, that's a great outfit. And she worries that it's a bit mumsy. Which, I don't know. I thought it was. I think, I mean, she's just dressing way, well, she dresses really conservatively, but then her actual wedding dress, mm. I thought was a bit risque, mm-hmm. honestly, um, for this new, you know, edges sanded off rose that right, we're dealing right, with here. Right, right, right. Anyway, they say that it isn't mumsy. Tom, you think it is mumsy. Yes. I was mostly fine with it. Okay. I really liked the hat, and I wish the hat went better with the outfit, and I really liked the um, like the sort of flared hem on the dress, so I liked that about okay. it. Okay. Yeah. We're... Speaking of the hat, the hat has not even appeared yet. The Dowager yeah. wants to see it with the hat, so she puts it on, and there's a flourish on the score. This is also Mary's same haircutting, being <laughs> at the fashion show music. Right. Because they only get two. Yeah. They've got the standard, you know, da-da, <laughs> da-da, Downton Abbey music. Right. And then there's the, like, like <laughs> jazz. Like, what the hell? Um... Isabel and the Dowager Countess actually applaud, perhaps because they're like, oh, she doesn't look like a whore. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, Rose asks Anna, who is dressing her. Oh, so they are at home, and it's Anna that's oh, yeah, yeah, dress. Yeah. So Rose asks Anna if she's looking forward to London, and uh, Anna is. She's going to be looking at their house that they rent. McGee is sorry that Susan is missing all of the, you know, pomp and circumstance. Yeah. And uh, let me say, as somebody whose mother was distinctly not fun in the lead up to my wedding they are all lucky that susan is not there because she would just be debbie downer the whole time yeah and no one would have any fun yeah anyway uh rose says that susan doesn't care about clothes right or people yeah no i feel so bad for rose yeah because while my mother may not have been excited in the lead up to my wedding she at least you know made it very clear that she was working very hard to not be fun Uh (laughs) um Mary wonders why the Flinchers didn't come back to England two months ago like they said they were going to. And McGee helpfully exposits that the government postponed the handover uh, of, of the, the Viceroy ship. Viceroyalty, yeah, yeah whatever. Yeah, because they're still the Empire, right? Yeah. Because when I first watched this, I was thinking they meant the transition. But no. Indian independence did not happen until yeah. after the movie Gandhi was released <laughs> in 1982. <laughs> right. <laughs> Like, oh, that Ben Kingsley makes a very good point. Precisely. Motion sustained. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, Mary says that she'd have come anyway uh, for her daughter's wedding. And the Dowager Countess suggests that in that case, Mary shouldn't have a career in the diplomatic. Which is interesting because that was her grandfather's bag. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And Lord Grantham apparently, too stupid to be a diplomat. (laughs) I think that's fair. They were like, you're going to lose all the colony's money, aren't you? He says, (laughs) Billio! When do I get a crack at it? <laughs> so the Flinchers are spending the night in Southampton, which is presumably the port that they are 
sailing into mm-hmm. uh, and will arrive on the same day as the Granthams. Mary asks if they are supposed to pretend that the Flinchers are a happy couple. Rose says yes. McGee is like, yes, absolutely. Yeah, come on. And is sorry that the wedding can't be at Downton. Uh, but Mary says that a registry wedding would shock the county. Yeah. And London makes more sense for Susan and Shrimpy, who I still can't believe is called Shrimpy. I know. After all these years. <laughs> like, still Shrimpy after all these years. <laughs> At any rate, Rose says that she wants a blessing in a synagogue, which are thin on the ground in Rip. <laughs> uh, city of a thousand dreams, yes. City of a thousand temples, no. Right. Uh, Isabel is, God, Isabel is the worst <laughs> kind of liberal. Yeah. Isabel's the kind of liberal who's so liberal that she winds up being a bigot. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not saying her bigotry is the worst on display here. No, 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 no. She's clearly just of a different generation and uh, she's right. trying to be like the cool aunt. <laughs> yeah. But she's like, uh, I'm so impressed with your willingness to like go stand in a synagogue for 20 minutes. <laughs> right. And to take it all in stride. And Rose is like, well, my generation lived through the worst war ever and everyone is dead. So we really don't give a shit anymore. <laughs> Rose says that it could help Lord Cinderby be a little bit more uh, comfortable with their marriage. And Isabel doesn't think he deserves her concern, which yeah. isn't that the direct opposite of what you just said? Yeah. Like if she's willing to take it all in her stride, she's got to deal with the fact that this person is going to be in her life. Right. And who are you to say that, you know, all these random whores deserve Isabel's concern? <laughs> no, she, I thought everybody deserved Isabel's concern. That Rose, was her whole thing. Would you mind if I invited some of the whores from the <laughs> Institute? <laughs> I'd like to have them tailor your dress, well, <laughs> which explains why it's so uh, okay. That's right. Anyway, Rose says that she loves Atticus, and Atticus loves his father, so by the transit of axiom, <laughs> she's going to do her damnedest to please Lord Cinderby. Yeah. And the Dowager Countess, uh, in perhaps what is her best aphorism of this particular season, says that love may not conquer all, but it can conquer quite a lot. Mm-hmm. And that made me feel all warm and fuzzy. Well, yeah. And then Rose gives another twirl because she's five. <laughs> right. It's like she's wearing her, you know, mother's heels and like. It really is. Yeah. Actually, this whole season has been like Rose playing dress up. Yeah. She's like, I'm going to be a very boring conventional person. <laughs> I feel like she's writing to all her bright young things, friends in London, <laughs> saying, it's such a jolly joke. <laughs> <laughs> like next season, her and Atticus are just like, you know, running a gin joint and like. That would be amazing. <laughs> that would be really cool. Yeah. I would love that development. Listen, if we have to get through one more season of these people. <laughs> yeah. Fellows, some of them need to start, Yeah. Somebody needs to start breaking bad on this. Yeah. First, like. <laughs> Marigold. <laughs> she starts selling counterfeit pigs out of U Tree Farm. <laughs> counterfeit. <laughs> Knock off Tamworths. <laughs> <laughs> Downstairs, Hughes worries about McGee facing the traitor O'Brien, which traitor seems a bit much. Uh, yeah, she simply like found other employment, and yeah. also like nobody's even thinking about O'Brien anymore. Although yeah. actually, I did think about O'Brien. I was like, won't that be awkward? Yeah. Despite the fact that I had seen this episode and this scene before, right. I was like, what happened to her? Uh, yeah. 
Carson has heard that the Flintshires have no maid or valet, and Hughes is like, yeah, dude, they're broke. Yeah, people have been talking about nothing else. <laughs> Car- That's why their daughter lives here. <laughs> yeah. Carson says that they then must be happy for the Cinderby millions, but Hughes says that Susan is not the most liberal person on the planet, which is true. <laughs> yeah, that's Isabel. And Hughes has also heard from Madge that Lord Cinderby is not too keen. Uh, how does Madge know? Right. Where is Madge? Yeah. Free Madge. <laughs> okay, another request for season six. Fucking Madge. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Lord knows the downstairs needs a shot in the arm, and Madge could be just the firecracker we've been waiting for. That, I agree. Maybe, you know, she and, she and Thomas can do a whole, I don't know, like Bride's Head Revisited thing. <laughs> I don't know why I said Bride's Head Revisited. Yeah, I don't know either. I just but, really uh, like that. No, you, you try to work it in. But yeah, <laughs> let's match it up. I mean, at least like a Mary Poppins Burt scenario. Like, come on, guys. <laughs> Make a chalk painting. Jump into it. Do something. <laughs> Carson's worried about running the whole wedding with just Barrow and Molesley, so Hugh suggests borrowing a spare footman from somebody. Carson says that even he thinks that sounds outdated. So Hughes is like, just hire a temp footman then, dude. Uh, Carson says, well, that's it for the big parade. And Hughes says the big parade has passed them by, which is true. We saw it end. Call it parade. <laughs> There'll be no more parades. <laughs> Party! <laughs> I have to say, I've noticed... You know, this early into this episode, so much of our commentary and not just our commentary, the telegrams I've been getting are like fan fiction, basically, <laughs> about how things could have been. We had a great, uh, a great telegram from a reverend oh. who would like us to stop swearing. Probably not going to happen. Yeah. Sorry. You know, dude. yeah, we're very Nothing uh, personal, but we're pretty fucking committed <laughs> at this point. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, he wrote this whole fan fiction, and I've heard this theory floated before mm-hmm. um, that Edith is actually like Rosamond's like bastard child. Oh, uh, so hey, maybe since I remembered that we have a Tumblr, maybe I'll post that. <laughs> maybe I don't know. so. Yeah, um, guys, I really do. I want to just say I really do want to like post more of these letters mm-hmm. and like responses. If I had a time turner, Hermione Granger style, <laughs> I would absolutely do that. Yeah, I know, but you would be exhausted. I'm already exhausted. <laughs> what difference would it make? <laughs> I have a time turner. It just doesn't work. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> In the library, it's kid playing time. Yes. And Sibby's playing a board game with Donk. <laughs> ah, we love that. Uh, he asks McGee what his father would say. That he's like, like, like so. He's, that he's like sitting on the floor acknowledging his grandchild as a human being. <laughs> right. Uh, they're playing snakes and ladders, incidentally. Yes. Which is a weird, creepy game, uh, that I played as shoots and ladders. Yes, as did and I. And then, like, a little bit later in my life, when I was probably, like, six or seven, like, you know, my school had some sort of generic, like, knockoff, non-sanitized Milton Bradley version uh, of yeah. it. That was snakes and ladders. And I was like, what the hell is this? Right. What's up with these snakes? Right. Anyway, McGee says, you're building a friendship with your granddaughter. And he tells Sibby that she landed on a snake, so she has to slide back. And Sibby is like, uh, why would I ever go back? <laughs> right. And Mary says, oh, go ahead and let her stay where she is. And then Lord Grantham says that won't help her later on if she doesn't know how to lose, dot, 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 all our money, <laughs> right. I assume. All of I have had our fortune eaten by a snake on multiple occasions. <laughs> and 
actual literal snake. <laughs> yes, I kept a stip of her lip. <laughs> I should really stop keeping our fortune in the snake room. <laughs> Mary tells Sibby to go ahead and cry. Which she Sibby was, was not, not crying. crying. She was merely trying to negotiate staying atop this snake. <laughs> right. Which is more business acumen than Lord Grantham has ever shown in, in his entire life. Indeed. Uh, and, uh, Mary wants her to make Donk feel guilty. Lord Grantham tells her not to call him Donk, and Sibby says, Donk, it's your turn. <laughs> Donk forever. Like, I love Donk. Yeah. Lord Grantham as Donk, so much more tolerable. Right. We like, should maybe just change his name to Donk. <laughs> possibly. Well, and I think, uh, you know, I mean, this could stick. This, this sort of thing is what happened to Shrimpy all those years ago. That's true. I wonder if this is what Julian Fellows' grandchildren call him. <laughs> it has that very, like, highly personal, specific feel yeah. of a legit grandparent name that makes no sense. Yeah. Yeah. No, like, that's I knew true. people growing up who called their grandmother Gogi. Yeah. Which kind of makes more sense than Donk. But not by a lot. Yeah. Not a lot. Yeah. Branson is reading a letter from his cousin in Boston, who we will refer to henceforward as Sully. Uh, Sully is looking to expand into farm machinery and wants Branson to come in with him since he knows about motors and farms. Right. And Edith asks if Sully's opening a branch in England because she <laughs> has apparently not been paying attention. <laughs> right. Granted, she was very preoccupied. She was. Frequently down at Pig Farm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Branson clarifies. Or, uh, no, or back from pig farm and washing herself heavily, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Branson clarifies, no, he'll be going to Boston. And Mary asks Rose how things are with Lord Cinderby. And she says that uh, he wishes that she would wake up one day and change her mind. Yeah. Mary's surprised with such a uh, rigid view on intermarriage that Atticus does not have a more Jewish name. And Rose says that his real name is Ephraim Atticus, but his mother always called him Atticus as a baby. Uh, perhaps because she knew this eventuality was going to happen. Yeah, could be. Uh, anyway, Mary points out correctly that Atticus's mother is Rose's ally. Uh, so Lady Cinderby is Rose's ally, and she thinks Atticus's happiness is more important than tradition. Yeah. And, you know, Lady Cinderby was also presumably behind resisting the attempt to change their last name back to whatever it had been that Lord Cinderby talked about. So Yeah, well, I thought he didn't want to. No, he said, remember, because uh, McGee made fun of him for having changed the uh-huh. family name. And he's like, oh, that was my grandfather, whatever. Mm-hmm. I thought about changing it back, but mm-hmm. the family decided that we were already English. And one assumes that Lady yeah, Cinderby... when you say the family, you y- mean my wife? <laughs> yeah. Carson asks the Bateses if they have a moment. He has had a call from Officer Bummer. No! He and Viner want to see both of them and asks why. Carson, of course, does not know. Bates had hoped this was over. So did Carson. So did literally everyone in the world. I was reading this article on Pajiba the other day about when did Downton Abbey die for you? Mm. And it's always weird for me to read these things because we can't like we're we're in this right you know this it's, is for real it's immortal for us yeah we have no cho- you know it's it's like true blood or something <laughs> right but like and you know and obviously he name checks the bait subplot as being sure. like the most egregious thing but like also like super hating on rose and all yeah, these other I've subplots lot that of, are perfectly fine yeah i've never understood people not liking rose there's not- I think people, not that we weren't attached to Sybil, right? But like, they're not gonna have her be a zombie, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, you've got to get with the times. Yeah, you've, you know, Rose is the new uh, it girl, 
or whatever. Right. Look, yeah, I mean, Sybil can come back from the dead in that unicorn movie. <laughs> <laughs> Which I also posted an article about that. Right. Also from Pajiba. Yeah. It's been a very Pajiba heavy week for, for me. For whatever reason, yeah. But I think people just assumed Rose was going to be terrible just because she was brought in in such a, you know... Cousin Oliver-esque way. Right. But she's fine. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say that her, her plot lines have been super great. Yeah, but she's super fun and her plot lines haven't... She hasn't had, like, a terrible plot line, yeah. which most of the characters have. Yeah, I mean, look, her Russian refugee thing is at least diverting. Yeah. And it brought her to Atticus. Mm-hmm. Edith and Lord Grantham are finishing a game of backgammon after dinner. The timeline in this is crazy, Yeah, by the way. It is. In case anybody was wondering. Yeah. Um, she says she's going up and she'll check on the children so he doesn't have to. And I'm not sure she's referring to Lord Grantham or Branson. Right. Uh, Branson says she's very keen. And Mary has possibly my favorite <laughs> moment of this episode by saying, I can't understand why she acts as if she invented motherhood. <laughs> yes. And it is hysterically funny because yeah. Mary clearly not a fan of motherhood. <laughs> like, when the children were in the library, Rose was the one playing the <laughs> right. Mary was like, go over there. She'll be gone soon. Uh Branson asks if Lord Grantham's thought any more about the cottages they're building on Fiddler's Green or whatever. <laughs> and Lord Grantham says that he doesn't know where they'll find the money. And I'm like, aren't you all dripping in diamonds? Like, <laughs> right. Just go hawk something and rip it. Yeah. You know, send Bates to do it. People will give him a lot more money because they think he's a killer. <laughs> <laughs> and uh Branson says that they better think about it while they're in London. Yeah. Well then I'm glad we talked about it. Yep, now. it's great that we talked about how you should think about something. <laughs> right. How about you think about it and you get back to us the audience when you've got something to say. You mean fellows? <laughs> In the servants' hall, Baxter asks if it's true about Officer Bummer. Anna asks how she knew as Daisy comes in with the calm air of somebody who has managed to completely avoid this whole fucking plot line. (laughs) Baxter reiterates her willingness to swear to having seen that untorn ticket uh, and mostly comes in to say that McGee is going to bed, so Baxter heads up. Anna hopes that Baxter isn't the only, like, ally they've got in all this. Uh, as do we. Yeah. And Daisy wisely continues to completely ignore this whole thing. She's finally internalized. I just now imagine that her mantra is, I own a farm. <laughs> I own a farm. I own a farm. I'm getting the fuck out of here. <laughs> uh the next day, again in the servants' hall, Molesley is resolving to see the sights in London. And I'm like, with what time? Well. This is a wedding. You're the only footman. <laughs> yeah. Besides this temp footman. Like, how are you not pulling 20-hour days? Listen, it's uh, it's all done by machines now. <laughs> it's Madge and several robots. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the show I would totally watch. <laughs> Uh, Baxter says she'll join him. Carson announces that the World War One memorial will be unveiled on the 25th, just after they get back from London, and announces that he'd like the house to be well represented by staff. Uh, Mrs. Patmore has to announce that she won't come rather than just not showing up. Right. Uh, she says she doesn't want to drag it up again, which uh, her bringing it up again would seem to belie. Yeah. But Hughes says that Mr. Carson understands, and then Mrs. Patmore goes off crying again. Yeah. Okay, great. At the Dower House, the Dowager's having breakfast. Like a boss. Mm-hmm. She has a really nice breakfast situation going on. She does. A dinker comes in and asks if she's done. She is. And the Dowager asks who was at the door, and it was Karate. 
Oh my God. Yeah. Who is downstairs willing to wait as long as necessary. The dowager says, you know, I think I'll wear a different outfit than I chose last night. And Dinker's like, I got you, boo. <laughs> She's already picked one out. The dowager. The lavender day dress. Yes. And the dowager says, oh, is he just an old friend? And Dinker says, yes, but it never hurts to look your best. Um, I know we're anti-surprise. Yes. But I feel like if you're going to have a surprise, one like this, like in your 80s, when like a dude comes to pay a call mm-hmm. or a lady, you know, whoever your flavor of choice is. Yeah. Uh, like that's a pretty dope surprise. It is. Well, I would say. I mean, even though like you have no idea what they're there for, it's like, oh shit. Right. And I would say this isn't a surprise surprise. It's an unexpected. It's not like he jumped out at her. She's got time to like pick out an outfit and yeah, all that no, sort of thing. Isn't it going to like take her an hour to get ready or something? <laughs> well, you know, what's Karagan got to do? Yeah, that's true. Go Hang home out and- with that horrible Spectacolinov <laughs> guy. <laughs> Go home and try to figure out how to make tea that doesn't suck. <laughs> Earl Grey. More like Earl Gross. (laughs) Lord Grantham and Carson discuss the memorial, and they say they'll need regimental representatives in a band. Lord Grantham assumes Carson has it under control, so I'm really glad that we have this scene of them discussing (laughs) logistics. My biggest problem with this whole episode is that the entire thing is like... The dramatic, uh, the dramatization of correspondence. Yeah. These are all like letters that could have been written to each other and that we didn't have to see. Right. Anyway, uh, Carson says he does have it under control. This would be the perfect time for a reunion of the cheerful Charlies. Oh my God. <laughs> what happened? Wasn't one of them dying? Uh, yeah. Him but, or that lady? But or- then he went off to Belfast or something. Oh, right. Right. He was dying and then Isabel nursed him back to health. <laughs> right. What is this show? (laughs) That's a good question. (laughs) Lord Grantham asks for Mr. Mason to have a special place at the uh, ceremony. And Carson mentions that Mrs. Patmore isn't going to come because, again, let's not drag this out again. Agreed. Let's. Yep. Probably the last we've heard of it. The Dower House Dowager asks Karagan what he means by last chance because she says that their chance has been gone for years. Karagan says he doesn't accept that. For one thing, they haven't actually found the princess yet. Boy, this is like the longest game of Super Mario Brothers ever. <laughs> the princess is on another island. <laughs> the Dowager asks if Karagan is talking about divorce, and Karagan says, why? Do you want more children? Listen, why she has not run off with this dude, <laughs> I don't know. He's charming, he's gruff, he's handsome, he's very, like, plain-spoken. Like, what else does she have to do? Sit around and let Mary and Edith ruin her legacy? Yeah, you know what? He he would set Spratt and Denker straight. Oh, he certainly would. He would say, in Russia, you both would be shot. <laughs> <laughs> Not even for doing anything. <laughs> it just it, just for being here. Just you know, I would get drunk. I'd shoot you. <laughs> Hire someone new. Karagan wants to spend his final years with the Dowager as a friend and as a lover. I don't know that he means and. That's something that I have struggled with about this line reading. Uh huh. When I've watched this episode, is like, does he mean he's willing to settle for friendship? Mm-hmm. Or does he mean definitely both? Like, I don't know. Yeah. It's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, definitely he wants he wants some loving, no doubt about it. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, obviously he wants both, but like what is he willing to accept? Right, right. It's a good question. He says he doesn't want scandal but love, and he doesn't want his remaining years to be ugly as his last few years have been. 
The Dowager asks him if he wants an answer now, uh, because it's all very sudden, but he says that he knows his own feelings, as does the Dowager, and his feelings aren't going to change. The Dowager, t- the Dowager tells him not to proclaim his intransigence as a virtue. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's pretty hot. It is. His intransigence. Yeah, I mean, also, that's, uh, his that's kind of- Also, greasy hair is kind of hot. He's got a real, like, Mr. Rochester vibe going here. Mm. Uh, he has a crazy wife in the yeah. attic, uh, the attic being Hong Kong. That's right. Uh, you the know, attic the- of Asia. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, no, according it's... to your stuff last week, it was the attic no, of Asia. No, it kind of was. No, I mean, that, uh, you know, that intransigence, that's, uh, that's a part of wooing. Yeah, it is. All right, everybody, strap in. <laughs> in the Carson cave, Viner has learned that Green wasn't as sunny as he'd been told. He apparently was a serial rapist, and they've gotten a few of them to come forward. I'm very curious as to how they found this out. Agreed. Carson says nothing happened here, and Viner says that Green's victims were usually small, slight women who'd given him little or no encouragement, which... You know... Well, he doesn't ever say the word rape, and it is actually a pretty no, period-specific depiction of rape true so glad they chose this storyline to really hew to historical standard (laughs) carson says that it's very unpleasant and i'm like yeah especially for the women who got raped yeah uh viner asks if bates agrees why are there so many people in here (laughs) right can we not get the svu crew in here (laughs) i need a little mariska hargitay you know uh chris maloney yeah cop bad cop get all these bitches out of here and get to the bottom of this that's right well, Chris Maloney would end up roughing Anna up, and then it'd be a whole thing. That's true. I don't. He doesn't <laughs> no, usually. He no, he would never rough up a woman. No, you're right. Marushka Hargitay though would go in for like. See, she would be the bad cop. Yeah, she's the bad cop with women, and he's the good cop with them. And right, then, like, right. She'd yeah. She'd be like, oh yeah, like I got raped once, and Anna would be like, I know, I know. This is a terrible plot line. Like, just get me out of here. Chris Maloney would have been like, I wish I'd killed that bastard myself. I have a daughter. <laughs> Oh, do you? We hadn't heard. <laughs> also a wife that I have sex with. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> so that's Law and Order's social unit in right. a nutshell. Officer Bummer adds that Bates has been cleared by a second witness to the argument with Green, saying the arguer was shorter than Bates, which I don't even... How, what? Yeah. What is even going on here? I know. It's, it's really is starting to feel like these two are like ghosts who just keep showing up and providing bizarrely contradictory information. They're like, listen, we've been interviewing everybody that lives in London. <laughs> <laughs> Officer Bummer asks Mrs. Hughes what she thinks, which also makes no sense. Agreed. She says she doesn't know anything. Everybody looks at each other equally as baffled as we. <laughs> Viner goes to leave and then invites Anna to meet him at Scotland Yard. And Carson's like, what the hell is that about? And Mrs. Hughes tells Anna that Viner's trying to bully it out, which maybe say that not in front of everybody. Well, yeah. Anyway, Carson's like, what, what, what? <laughs> and then Mosley pops in to say, uh, Carson, we have to all pretend like we don't know what's going on. So could you go somewhere else now? Yeah. In the library, Lord Grantham greets a Mr. Evans. Uh, apparently, his father has been carving gravestones for the dogs of Downton Abbey for years, which is an interesting trade. Uh, also, confirmation that Isis did not make it. Right. Uh, I mean, we knew she wouldn't, but... Yeah. But this it's is kind honestly of, kind of a relief to find out this way. It's rare that I want Baron Fellows to put something off screen. Yeah, but... but I didn't want to see Isis die. No, no, nobody wanted It was wanted bad that. enough. Yeah, yeah. 
So he shows Lord Grantham a drawing in a book he has. Lord Grantham asks if this is a book full of pets' tombstones, uh, which is an amusing thought. But uh, no, he says it's just an example of all of their work. Oh, no, it's just this jolly novel I'm working on. <laughs> it's called Pet Cemetery. <laughs> I'm pretending to be a chappie named Stephen King. Do you know a publisher? Perhaps in your family. <laughs> what? No. <laughs> well, there's just Marion Branson, so no. <laughs> Sibby seems rather a bright thing. <laughs> she can get over her fear of snakes. <laughs> and her love of donkeys. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, so Lord Grantham sees a drawing of a memorial and looks thoughtful. At the dower house, Spratt enters the bedroom where Denker is stacking luggage, and he's late because he resents Denker for ringing for him. And I'm like, how else? You didn't have cell phones, guys. <laughs> right. talkie-talkies. <laughs> like, I don't know how, like, how did uh, the previous maid summon you? At any rate, she asks if he would prefer to be summoned by Joshua's trumpet, which, bitch, if you have Joshua's trumpet, how are you in service? Right. You could be doing a national tour. It belongs in a museum. (laughs) (laughs) He says he would prefer to not be summoned at all, and I'm like, don't you have a job to do? Yeah, but he, he is the boss. That's his feeling. Yeah. So Danker tells Spratt to take the bags down and goes off for rain gear. Uh, Spratt has a cunning plan (laughs) and kicks a suitcase under the bed. Yeah. Thinking that the suitcase, I'm just spelling this out. (laughs) Thanks. I don't know why. I now feel the need to finish this sentence. (laughs) Sure. So his plan is, see, (laughs) he's going to push this suitcase under the bed and then the dowager will blame Danker for forgetting a suitcase and then fire her. Right. Which also makes no sense. Yeah, it's not going to happen. No. Like, she already, look, she's an old lady. Yeah. She doesn't want to have to train new servants. Right. No new friends. (laughs) YOLO. (laughs) Drake has a new album. I really should familiarize myself with the zeitgeist. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. If you're saying that, it's too late. (laughs) Downstairs, Anna wonders if they should just tell the police everything and get this over with. Bates says no, because God forbid we ever get this over with. Uh, Anna says that the coppers ain't got nothing on them, but Bates says, even so, which is just not much of an answer. We're just going to pretend that never happened. Great. Uh, Carson enters the kitchen where Daisy's packing up, and he says that Lord Grantham has invited Mr. Mason for the memorial unveiling, including Daisy as his widow. Carson says he'll write to Mr. Mason, but it would be nice for Daisy to mention it as well. Then Carson says it's time to get to the cars. Like, should we start taking a shot (laughs) every time somebody tells somebody else a letter they have to write? Yeah. The Dower House, like, you know what? If Mr. Mason had just shown up at the memorial, we all would have pretty much figured out why he was there. Uh, Also, he, like, lives nearby. Right. Who fuck? At the Dower House, Dowager's getting into the car, hoping Spratt will manage without Denker. He is uh, not at all concerned. No. Uh, No, it'd be great. He'll have the place to himself. Won't have to put pants on all the time. You know how it is. I just like to think of Spratt wearing his, like, livery, (laughs) and then just, you know, BVDs. (laughs) Dowager asks Danker if these are all the cases, and Danker says, oh, good eye, they are missing one, and since Spratt brought them down, uh, no doubt he's put it somewhere special for safekeeping. And so Spratt does all that Spratt stuff with his (laughs) eyes and his cheeks and everything, and the Dowager tells him to fetch the case. So he pouts off, and the Dowager chuckles. 
in front of Downton, everybody's getting ready to leave and the nannies and the babies are watching. I will say, yes. Sibby may be like our undisputed champion of cutest baby. Right. But she seems like she's a real handful on set. <laughs> yeah. We see her with her nanny and she's just like bouncing up and down. <laughs> Whereas, you know, George and Marigold's just, uh, parents have drugged them. <laughs> right. Uh, in keeping with their contract. Yeah. So you can just sort of set them down wherever you need them. Yeah, but Sibby's parents clearly are Scientologists. So <laughs> Edith says she feels guilty leaving Marigold on her own. Lord Grantham says she's surrounded by nannies and children. Though sadly, no pigs. Ah, I'm sure they could take a field trip. <laughs> uh, Lord Grantham gets in a car with McGee and says, Edith is obsessed with that child. And I'm like, welcome to the party, Johnny come lately. Right. She did adopt this child. One would hope a certain amount of obsession was present. McGee says Marigold is a dear little thing. And Lord Grantham says there's something about her that he can't quite put his finger on. Something deja vu-esque. <laughs> right. Uh, possibly it's her weird forehead. That could be it. And uh, the cars all drive off, leading Marigold, the mutant baby. <laughs> I just, it's like... No, and I hate... I, want, I feel like Laura Carmichael must cry herself to sleep <laughs> every day. Yeah. Because it's like... Even when they like started dressing her better, they're still like, "Oh, but your baby, uh, hella ugly." Yeah, and I don't and even it, think that that kid is actually ugly. Yeah, the, the issue is actually her haircut. The haircut is her terrible. Haircut is like, did you, did they put you through like a combine? Yeah, no, I felt bad, you know, criticizing this baby's appearance. And so, listen, in the future, actor who played that baby who has grown up and stumbled across our podcast, I'm sure you look great now. Oh yeah, everybody looks weird as a baby. Well, but- no, and. and Generally speaking, if you're really cute as a kid or a baby, you grow up into a weird-looking adult. Yeah. Case in point, Kay- uh, Haley Joel Osment. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's, like, my number one yeah. like, go-to for that. Yeah, we, like, never see George's face in this episode. No, it's true. He's, like, w- there's glimpses, but it's He's always, like... He's, like, the baby with the iron mask. <laughs> Seems unsafe. Mary don't care. <laughs> That's true. I am tired of looking at him. <laughs> I do so love those sailor suits. <laughs> the cars pull up in London. Down- Presumably these are different cars. Well, that's true. Uh, downstairs, Hughes introduces Andy, the temp footman. Anna asks if he's starting at dinner. He's like, yep. Thomas asks how Carson found him, and he says he was working as a hall boy when Carson called his butler uh, looking for candidates. And Baxter asks if they will take him back because it's only a week-long job. Uh, but Andy don't care. He is done being a hall boy. No more halls for him, says he. Baxter thinks that it's brave. Thomas agrees. and asks, It's not that brave. Not with a servant problem. Agreed. but And the lack of employable men of his age. But nonetheless, it's hard to change jobs. Thomas asks if Andy knows London. He says he just knows the East End and Bayswater. Denker knows where that is and weirdly asks if that means that anybody knows Andy in the neighborhood. And also if he enjoys a bit of fun because she knows where to find it. She is apparently from the area, so she's just Denker from the block. (laughs) (laughs) You're fired. Uh, anyway, Thomas doesn't want to hear Denker's life story. Neither do we! <laughs> yeah. And so takes Andy off for orientation. Out front, Lord Grantham welcomes the hunter home from the hill, a.k.a. the flinchers. And right. I'm like, there's two of them, you boob. <laughs> Susan complains about their trip yeah. in a well, typical Susan fashion. Yeah, there's two of them, but only one of them is actually welcome. That's true. 
McGee says that uh, Susan must lie down. Carson asks if they have any attendance. Shrimpy says those days are done. And Susan says they needn't tell the world. And I'm like, uh, it's just Carson, bro. Yeah, who's going to figure out that you don't have any attendance. When you show up <laughs> naked for dinner. <laughs> Inside, Hughes tells Susan that Anna will be her maid and Molesley will vow it for Shrimpy. Which, has Anna been Rose's maid this whole time also? I don't... Wait, maybe? Good or question. Or maybe Madge. Look, look well, no, I, just, I would love to see what the internal world-building chart of the Division of Labor is below stairs. Right, well, because I think we've established that Madge is Edith mm-hmm. and we, obviously Anna is Mary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Interesting. I mean, there's always a ton of servants running around downstairs in Downton that we never get introduced it's to. true. Despite everybody's complaints. Anyway, Susan cannot believe that she's being asked to share a room with Shrimpy. McGee says, well, we're very squashed. <laughs> uh, but Susan says, in that case, she'll just go to a hotel. Uh, you and me are the Susan of our family. Yeah, that's we're true. We're like, uh, sharing room, peace out. We will go stay anywhere else. Right. If you're squashed, then you don't need us there. Yeah. We don't like being squashed. We really don't. Yeah. Anyway, Hughes says that they'll manage. So Mosley takes the flinchers up and Hughes says that Rose can room with that Rose can room with Edith, the pyromaniac. And this really pisses me off, actually, because it's Rose's freaking wedding. It is Rose's freaking wedding. She should not have wedding. to share a room right now. I mean, I understand that if, you know, Edith and Mary had to share a room, that, you know, time and space <laughs> would be rent at the seams. That's true. It would be like in Clone High. Yeah. With, uh... Cleo and Joan. Yeah. The two, the two main right. female characters of Clone High. I'll can you good, I will. <laughs> Here's a can of beef broth. It's <laughs> dented, but you poor people don't care about that, right? That's pretty much Mary's, Mary's attitude towards Edith. Actually, it really is. Yeah. <sighs> Clonton Abbey. <laughs> Downton High. That could be anything. Yeah, that's true. Clonton. No, Clonton Abbey. Yeah. No, there's... Actually, I feel like we could really map yeah, this out. Yeah, we really could. Yeah. Oh, man. Because, uh, oh, man. Well, but, uh, ah, this is tough, though, because it's like, do you have to go all the way back to season one? Right. Yeah, that's a good question. Listen, honestly, this is too much of a yeah, word problem we need for to, us. We're we need to really, work on this. Yeah, okay? we are. We're going to think about it. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Lord Grantham knew that Susan would be trouble because he's dumb, but he's not that dumb. Yeah. Susan's the worst. Yeah. Rose uh, shyly enters Susan's room to say hi. You write shyly here, but honestly, it seems very drama of the gifted child. Yeah. Like, this is clearly a situation where she's like, I can't even believe I have to talk to you. Right. That's, yeah. Susan immediately complains about the journey and then uh, asks for a kiss from her darling daughter, which she doesn't seem to enjoy, and then says, Rose has made quite a choice. And Rose hopes she'll like Atticus when they meet at dinner. Susan ignores this and just asks uh, if Rose is quite, quite sure about marrying this Jewish person. Right. And Rose says she is, and that's all Susan needs to hear. Spoiler alert, it isn't. No. Oh, my God. Downstairs, Anna asks Hughes if dinner is soon. She says that they are not all here. Anna says that she has a letter from Viner confirming the appointment that we all already know about. But, uh, yeah, yeah, we even, it's 10 o'clock on Tuesday. Yeah, we've already... We already know she's going. Yeah. Uh, anyway, he says to go see her house after the appointment, whatever. Thomas tells Andy how they run things while tying his tie. Yeah. Here's so what I little... will say about this. Go ahead. I, what I really, the unfortunate fallout of the Jimmy Kent episode mm-hmm. is that now anytime Thomas talks to a younger footman, there's a whiff of uh this sort of predatory sort of grooming thing 
going on. I understand. And I don't think that's what's going on in this episode, but I just, it feels like that. It does. But I think I, you know, I, I take it for granted that Thomas learned his lesson from all that. Mm-hmm. He had a friendship with Jimmy in the end. And, you know, I mean, yeah, look, he's not going to dislike tying an attractive younger man's tie. Like, I agree. It's just, I just, I feel apprehensive. I understand. About this, whatever this relationship is. Fair enough. As they walk into the sitting room, McGee hopes Anna was helpful to Susan. And Susan says she will be because Susan's a bitch. Yeah. Uh, Edith asks where the Cinderbees are as the Dowager Countess arrives. And then Lord... Sorry, Lord Grantham. Okay, Lord Grantham. We should just have written Donk. Donk <laughs> asks Mary about the Cinderbees. And they say Lady Cinderby is very fond of Rose. Lord Cinderby is less convinced. Uh, although Mary points out that Rose is more than a match. Yeah. And Susan agrees. Shrimpy says the Cinderbees have as much right to object as, uh, you know, they do. So basically, the Cinderbees, you know, criticism can be A, you know, Rose is not Jewish, also penniless. Right. Which, you know, hey. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, uh, Atticus is Jewish, which. Atticus is Jewish. Well, and from a very new title. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So they're really, what a crazy <laughs> thing. Rose begs them not to fight in front of everybody. And Susan says that it would be dishonest to present as if they were not separated. She says that we separated the moment we walked down the gangway at Southampton. Uh, Shrimpy says it won't kill them to put on a show for a few more days. And Rose doesn't want to give Lord S. any ammunition. Uh, the Dowager Counter chuckles and says Rose is a mesalliance. Yes. Which I don't know what that means. Like a peacekeeper? I think it just means like, a, you know, a bad match. Mm. Yeah, and know. so, it, so the Dowager is just amused to think that you know Rose McClare would be considered yeah. a bad match. Edith says it's not helpful. Uh, clearly not. Right. Thomas announces the Cinderbees, who are welcomed by McGee. Rose introduces Atticus to her parents. Susan says, "What's a peculiar name?" and walks off. Modeling the kind of behavior your mother exhibited oh, when yes. she met me. Yes, I was having terrible flashbacks. This uh, entire episode. Yeah, no. It's, it's really, it's, really... B- yeah. Look, cousins, anybody out there who has uh, gotten involved in a marriage where you don't get along with the other person's parents or your own, uh, we're with you. Yeah. We are We are reaching out and <laughs> holding your hands through the internet. Yeah. Uh, our greatest advice, move 2,000 miles away. Yeah. Because it really solves most of those problems. You'd be surprised. Yeah. Move 2,000 miles away and never talk to your in-laws on the phone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unless you just called them up to say, Shrimpy! <laughs> Which maybe I'm just going to start doing. <laughs> Call from an unlisted number. <laughs> Cousins will let you know how that goes. Although if it's a California number, they're going to know who Yeah, lives. I think they'll, they'll figure it out. Unless they think it's your one cousin who randomly lives out here. Oh, yeah. Which they won't. They won't. No. That's a guy. <laughs> um... <laughs> It's <laughs> <laughs> well. Hey, this has turned out better than I thought. Yeah. No. We're. Yeah. We're. Hey. We're having fun. We're having a. Gr- I hope you are too, cousin. <laughs> yeah. Uh, down in some hall, Hughes asks Carson how things are going. He says that Susan is not a pushover, which Hughes is like, duh. Carson says he must ask why v- Viner wanted to see Anna. Like, must you ask? Can't you just shut up? Can't uh, all of us never talk about this again? Yeah. Uh, Hugh says that she can swear to Carson that neither of them did anything wrong. Carson never doubted it. Can she, though? Can she swear to it? I don't think anybody knows what's going on. Agreed. 
this is very king of wishful thinking going on here. Does, like, yeah. this is just, ugh. Yeah. All right, we've got another dinner scene, which yeah. apparently is the bane of the cast's existence. Oh, and yeah. I, you know, can't blame them. These yeah. must be terrible to film. So Lord Grantham asks Lady Cinderby. Well, especially when you've got, you know, you've got 14 people to block and the Oracle monitoring every movement. Yeah. Lord Grantham asks Lady Cinderby why they moved to Yorkshire, and she says that she went there as a girl, and of course it's beautiful. Uh, also, presumably that's where they could find an estate they could buy. Yeah. Susan asks if the Cinderbys have any English blood because she's a bitch. Yeah. Lord Cinderby smoothly says that it's true that they only date from 1850, which is pretty old for new money or well, a new title. They they only came to England in oh, 1850. Okay. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, Lady Cinderby's family arrived uh, in the reign of Richard III. Yes. Uh, the winter of our discontent, for those of you keeping score at home. <laughs> right. Susan says she always thinks of you, uh, the people, is implied. Yeah. As nomads drifting around the world. And I'm like, well, maybe you should stop reading the Bible, <laughs> which is seriously outdated. Or like the protocols of the elders of Zion. Or um, also, if you think of them as nomads, then perhaps you should consider why they are nomads, which is that they keep getting chased out of villages with pitchforks and torches. Yeah. The Dowager Countess very smoothly changes the subject to the honeymoon, and apparently they'll be staying with Lady Melford, which is a weird thing to do for a honeymoon. Yeah, but I can uh, I can imagine that it was, you know, the done thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, they were starting there, and then I think they're going abroad. Okay. I would assume. Yeah. Uh, Atticus says she's Lady Cinderby's cousin, and Susan says, is she? Because this is new information. Right. Lord Cinderby asks Rose about the synagogue blessing, and Rose says she liked to respect both sides. Lord Cinderby says that she doesn't understand his customs, but why would she? And it won't be possible. Which is weird because this seems like something Atticus should have like mentioned. Well, yeah, and and Lord Cinderby says that he should have, and absolutely, yeah. like this is that's it's just kind of a dick move, Atticus. Like yeah. I like you, but you've got to be upfront with your lady yeah. about what is and is not possible. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's just like you know, if you're a Catholic and a non-Catholic wanted to have communion, you got to be like, no, you you know, you can't, that's not our yeah, deal. No, nothing personal. But we that's can just... have a Catholic ceremony, but it's not going to be a mass, right? Lady Cinderby suggests that they'll give a dinner for Wednesday night so they can meet some of their relations. Mm -hmm. And Mary says yes and show them how lucky they are. And everybody laughs. Like, Mary's really coming into her own in terms of just being like the Dorothy Parker of this situation. (laughs) Right. Yeah. This ragtag band of Algonquin (laughs) wannabes. McGee asks if they have a lot of guests staying with them. And Lady Cinderby says yes, they do. Uh, Apparently, they are also quite... Uh, strapped for space. Atticus has moved into the Hallenby, the Hallenby Hotel, which Mary says she loves. And I'm like, who'd you bang there? Right. Like, why are you staying in all these hotels? <laughs> which don't get me wrong. I love staying in hotels. Oh, yeah. If anybody ever wanted us to have a podcast where we just went and stayed in hotels and then talked about them and we got paid for that, we would do that in a heartbeat. Yeah, done. No, I walked for a meeting into the lobby of uh, the Westin St. Francis in San Francisco a couple mm. weeks ago, and it was just like, it was like a sauna. Yeah. I was like, why am I not here all the time? <laughs> uh, Lady Cinderby says that uh, he can have his, what do they call it now? His stag party there. <laughs> and Edith asks if Lord Cinderby will be going to the stag party, which, bizarre. 
Although some people do that. Yeah, some people's no, parents go to their stag party. Yeah, and that's also, I think, still, you know. I mean, they're still innocent enough at this point. Right, right, that, right. you know. Yeah. Uh, Atticus says that stag parties are high on Lord Cinderby's disapproval list. Dowager Countess asks if that's a long list. He says no, just card sharps, undercooked fish, and divorce. Uh-oh. Dun-dun-dun. <laughs> and actually, I think they've had both undercooked fish and card sharps on this show. So I guess it's good that Gregson's dead. Yeah. <laughs> Isabel asks if divorce is so terrible. Isn't it worse to stay together and be miserable? Uh, Lord Cinderby says it signifies weakness, degradation, scandal, and failure. So I guess that's a no. Apparently. On that question. Lord Grantham asks Susan if she's glad to be in London, and she says she will be when she gets the house back. The tenants should be leaving next week, and it will be a relief to shut the door and be alone in her own house. Lord Cinderby is like, uh, won't Shrimpy be with you? And both Rose and Shrimpy are like, oh yeah, totally. Like, there's absolutely (laughs) no reason in this comical conversation (laughs) where you've just said you hate divorce. Like, this is practically like a Benny Hill episode. (laughs) Uh... (laughs) shrimpy says uh what a funny thing to say susan and the dowager says funny is one word for it lady cinderby says they'll always be welcome at canningford which sounds like a parody show (laughs) about a british estate no that's Um, true like oh what's that one with jim broadbent was in it um i can't remember what it was called Longford? yeah that one yeah that wasn't a parody at all really no that was really it was about the this lord that got really interested in this serial killer that he was convinced was innocent right. but she wasn't uh didn't they like fall in love or something or? not quite i mean they had you know the whole thing was about their complex relationship and weird relationship and i wonder what i'm thinking about i, well, I know because i know what you're thinking of i don't know lark candleford lark rise to candleford yeah that one okay yeah. maybe I don't know. We'll, well figure it out. This has been- <laughs> There's a lot of British shows that end in Ford. <laughs> That's true. Uh, at any rate, Susan asks if uh, she finds it difficult to get staff. And she says, not really, but then we're Jewish, so we pay well. Boom! Yeah. Uh, that might be the biggest boom of the series. I might. Because it's not clear if that's what Susan was implying. Right. Like, she may have just been making standard rich person conversation. Yeah. But... But she's like, you fucking, like, Scottish penniless bitch. Yeah. Uh, we're doing great, and we will be eventually bailing out your dumbest state in Scotland. That's right. Yeah. I wonder how that works. Yeah. At this point. I mean, I guess it sort of depends on what Atticus's income is mm-hmm. per annum before he becomes Lord Cinderby. Right. And like how they choose to apply that. Yeah. Well, and he does have a job too. He works at a bank. That's true. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it seems a waste to spend all that money like propping up a crumbling old estate, but yeah, but I, I guess mean, now that Rose has lost all taste for city living, <laughs> I wonder where they're going to live. Yeah, I do too. The Dowager tells Isabel that she needs an early night if she's going to get through the week. Uh, she asks if Murdy's coming to the wedding, and Isabel says no. The Dowager's sorry to hear that. Isabel says that the Dowager has changed her tune, Ray is a Mert, and <laughs> the Dowager says... I thought it was Murdabelle. It is Murdabelle. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Quit trying to make is a Mert happen. I don't, I don't know why. Because it's also very good as a portmanteau. Yeah, they're both great. Anyway, the Dowager has been reminded that one is not given many chances in life, and she is not talking about Murdabelle. She is talking about Dowergan. <laughs> Carragager? Carragager, yeah. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> 
In the drawing room, Mary says that Cinderby's stiff as a board, and Rose asks what more she could do to, you know, uh, try and get on his good side. Edith asks if Mary and Branson worry about Sibby and George when they're away. Mary says, why would we? <laughs> we never see them when we're at home. Edith thinks about Marigold all the time, and Mary asks what she'll do when she has one of her own, which, again, also, somebody sent us a timeline, and Mary's 33, and Edith is 32? 31 or 32, yeah. yeah. So, again, this is a bit old to be having kids I mean, when you're not already married in this timeline. Right. I mean, a bit. not Still not... But it's at the point where you can't assume it's going to happen. Exactly. Either. And they're all talking as if she's, right. you know, if a 22 year old. Yeah. And it's like, well, obviously Edith won't have a problem getting a husband. <laughs> yeah. She's done so well for herself in the past. <laughs> Rose intends to just leave her children to her nanny, which I say bully. <laughs> uh, Branson says it still seems odd to him the way that they raise their children. And Edith asks if it'll be different in America. Mary says he's not going because denial is not just a river in Egypt. <laughs> and Branson starts to protest, but Rose says to stop fighting because it's her goddamn wedding. That's right. Well said, Rose. So Mary suggests they all go for lunch on Wednesday. Even you, Edith. <laughs> to mark Rose's last days of freedom. She'll treat them at rules. They all agree to go. Yes. I mean, who wouldn't? I would. Free meal at rules. Mm-hmm. Lord Grantham enters the bedroom, says that Lord Cinderby will a challenge, says that Lord Cinderby will be a challenge for Rose, and McGee agrees. Lord Grantham complains about Susan. Lord Grantham asks if McGee knew that Bates and, o- that Bates and Anna are going to Scotland Yard. McGee asks why, and Lord Grantham doesn't know. Nobody knows. Everybody stop asking why. McGee asks if they need character testimonials, but apparently Lord Grantham asked Bates about that, and he said not yet. Uh, or ever because you're so good at character witnesses. Right. <sighs> All right. This is the last time we ever talk about murder prison, I'm sure. <laughs> at a desk, Lord Grantham hands a stonemason's bill to Carson, asks if Mrs. Patmore is downstairs. Carson says he believes so. Lord Grantham asks if Bates is back. Ugh. <laughs> He isn't. Lord Grantham says it's a strange business, which is definitely true. Yeah. Uh, Lord Grantham goes into the next room and sees Susan wandering around and asks if she needs help. And we all say, yes, <laughs> more than you know. <laughs> She's looking for where to put a letter. Lord Grantham says the post may have already gone. And Susan hates saying the checks in the post when it isn't. So she'll walk up to German Street and post it herself. But Carson comes in and it turns out it's not too late to give him a letter to post. Uh, so once again. Yeah. Just how, hey, what are you putting in letters? How's it getting to where it needs to go? Right. Time well spent. This is like if all of Sense and Sensibility was just people talking about how their letters were getting places. (laughs) Yeah. Not the letters themselves, just the method of their delivery. In the kitchen, Daisy tells Patmore that Baxter and Molesley have invited her to go see the Wallace collection. Uh, and the Wallace collection I looked at a little bit is pretty interesting. It was, uh, various Earls of Hartford collected it over the years, you know, much like the previous Earl of Grantham. And, uh, eventually one of them died with no legitimate heirs and was able to pass it along with all his non-entailed properties to his illegitimate son. Uh, and that son ended up leaving it uh, as a public collection on the ground, uh, on the conditions that it always be free, uh, for, to the public and none of the pieces could ever leave the collection, even like on loan to another museum or anything mm-hmm. like that. So, and it, I was looking through their, you know, like the Wikipedia thing. I mean, they've got some really impressive stuff there and, uh, it's apparently the only place you'll ever get to see it. So very cool. It's free, buddy. <laughs> Uh, Patmore says that the wedding is on Friday, and even Madge can't do all the work in Downton and London. What about the robots? <laughs> well, 
<laughs> they don't want to introduce them into London just yet. It could cause a scandal. <laughs> <laughs> the robots all only have Yorkshire accents, so uh, it's like... And they're Jewish, so <laughs> it's really going to be a problem for everyone. I can't do out about that, Gov. <laughs> <laughs> but Daisy says it's only Tuesday now, and they've done most of what they can do for the wedding that they don't have to do the day of. Patmore asks if this is a kitchen or a holiday resort. Holiday resort, obviously. Clearly. I mean, it's just, you know... Everybody's been on holiday the entire season. Yeah. There's multiple separate plot lines of servants that don't involve them doing any servanting at all. Holiday. <laughs> we don't do no work. Anyway, Daisy can go. She's back by tea time. She then turns around to see Lord Grantham standing there and says, oh my God. <laughs> Which is hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Lord Grantham apologizes for interrupting, and he asks her to reconsider coming to the unveiling of the memorial. He says that he wants reconciliation to be the order of the day, and she's like, well, if it means that much to you, and he's like, it does. Well, then get out of my kitchen. Yeah. Leave me be. Why couldn't you just, like, tell Carson you were going to write me a note, (laughs) since that's the entire episode so far? Right. I suppose we'll carry it down on some sort of tray, yes? (laughs) Very good, my lord. In murder jail. Right. It's not murder prison. Yeah. Because they have been convicted. Bates and Anna are sitting in a waiting room. Viner asks Anna in. Bates says he's coming as well. And Viner's like, yeah, whatever. Like, there's no protocol (laughs) about this at all. Yeah. They go into a room with a lineup of women. And Anna is asked to stand in the line. Uh, Bates says it's madness, but of course he has no choice. I am very skeptical of them not telling her she was coming to stand in a lineup. How was she the last one who got there? Why are all these other women looking nonplussed? This is ridiculous. Yeah, I don't know. Well, the other women would presumably be just prisoners. They're like, hey, want to dress up and stand in the lineup? And they're like, sure, yeah. I ain't got nothing to do. Uh, they each get a numbered card and a man is shown in. He looks at each of them and leaves. Bates asks what this is about. Viner says most of this is just routine. Anna says they should go. Bates glares at Viner as if Viner gives a shit. Right. He's like, dude, you've already been in prison twice. Yeah. Well, that's throughout this episode. Everybody keeps all harumphing at Viner for various reasons. And what do you think? He's a policeman. Yeah. He's doing his job. Nobody ever enjoys seeing him. So he doesn't care. In the kitchen, Daisy asks Andy if he's settling in. He says he is. Denker says that she'll take Andy for a walk later after McGee is in bed. He's not a puppy. What is going on? I don't know. Like, what, Actually, and honestly, she seems more predatory than Thomas. Yeah, she him. really like, does. I don't know what you're doing. And she's like, clearly got some sort of scheme for him. It's and very w- creepy. Does she run a gang of pickpockets? Oh, like, man, that would be great. That would be. You've got to dank a pocket or two. <laughs> Uh, Patmore then sarcastically asks Andy if he'd mind taking the coffee up while it's still hot, so he does that. Patmore asks if Danker is leading Andy into bad ways, but she thinks that he knows his way around and walks out. Patmore doubts that he knows his way around and starts speculating about what Danker might be up to, but Daisy is just kind of staring off into space. Uh, she says that London is full of possibilities. Patmore says life is full of possibilities, <laughs> which is a great answer. Uh, Daisy is not sure about that, and Patmore just can't even. Up in the drawing room, Shrimpy asks where Aunt Violet is. Susan says that my Aunt Violet has gone up. Uh, you know she doesn't like you. Right? Shrimpy asks where Atticus is. Rose says he's at a stag party, and she asks if Shrimpy likes Atticus, and he says he likes him. McGee asks Lord Grantham if he got to Bond Street. He says the chap he was seeing was busy, so he's going tomorrow. McGee says not to make them late for the Cinderbees, uh, whatever the hell it is that he's doing, because he's being, again, unnecessarily mysterious. Right. Again, thanks so much for telling us all about what you're doing in terms of letters. Yeah. But not telling your wife where you're going or what you're doing. <laughs> right. 
Uh, oh, right. That hasn't happened yet. But well Edith wants to know what he's doing in Bond Street. He says, it's just an idea he's had. Mary says he clearly no, won't share it. Uh, yeah, we're all just, they're all you fine know, with that. They're like, we're you all know just what? talking about where other people are who aren't there. You know, they're all off having plot lines that we're talking about. We're not seeing any of the action. Right. And they're like, well, Lord Grantham's off doing some business dealings. No reason for us to be involved or concerned. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure, uh, I'm sure he's got our best interests and common sense at heart. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, crazy bachelor party. Woo! Yeah. Uh, Atticus says that he's had enough and is going to bed. Because Ad- Atticus is like fundamentally a fuddy-duddy. Yeah, he really is. Which, you know, Which I is, if you're getting married, that's great. Yeah, that, that clearly is what Rose likes about him, but he is. So everybody's like, boo. But he climbs up onto a chair, says that he promised he would have one more drink, and now he's had it and he's going to bed, and they can all drink as long as they want on him. Woo! Yeah, they're Cinder pre- be money. They're I all- would love some of that Cinder be money. Yeah, for real. Uh, so they're all pretty psyched. Uh, and some woman c- catches his eye uh, and then goes and follows him and like gets in the elevator with him and starts like making a move and grabbing his shirt and stuff. And Atticus is like, whoa, they're crazy. Yeah. Uh, I was like, I'm sorry if I misled you by looking at you. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, this is... Fresh in your drink, Captain! <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so anyway, she gets off the elevator. Uh, in his room, Atticus is taking his shirt off, and there's a knock at the door, a voice saying they brought him his tea. Atticus says he didn't order any tea. He'd be up all night. <laughs> <laughs> so he puts a dressing gown on or whatever and goes and opens the door, and the floozy shoulders her way in. He's like, what? Atticus asks, he asks if Mr. Reichart paid her to come up, if this is some kind of prank or whatever. Uh, she pulls her top kind of down off her shoulders and then says goodbye and walks out, pulling her top back up and smiling off camera. It's very bizarre. Yeah. It's just like, whoa, okay. Yeah. Like, I remember... Like, you know, are you on a dare or a scavenger hunt or something? Like, right. what's going on? No, I remember the first time we saw this, we were like, what? Yeah. Uh... Back in the servants' area of Grantham House, Barrow asks if Andy went for his walk with Danker, and he says he did and regrets it. Mrs. Hughes walks in and asks if everything's fine. Uh, he says it's fine. Again, riveting stuff. <laughs> Edith and Branson sit at Rules. Edith says it's where she had her first date with Gregson, and Branson says that one day she'll be glad to think of the time she spent with him. Edith says he's the only one who seems to understand as Mary and Rose arrive, and they apologize for being late. They'd been out shopping. Rose says that if she showed them what she bought, the other women there would be too jealous to eat. Jealousy generally makes me eat more, (laughs) just as a matter of principle. Still, it's her wedding. We'll let her have her delusions. Uh, Edith has a letter for Rose that was messaged that was messengered to the house. Rose opens it as Mary asks who it's from. She says it's unsigned, and then she sees pictures of the floozy exiting Atticus's room with a fairly dumb look on Atticus's <laughs> face. <laughs> to be fair, he usually has a fairly dumb look on his face. Right. Uh, Edith asks what it is. Mary, who can see it, explains. Uh, she tells Rose to have some water. The waiter comes up and asks if they're ready to order, and Mary very calmly says they need a few more moments. Rose starts crying. Edith asks her what she's going to do. She says she's not sure. And Branson says that she should telephone Atticus right away and arrange to see him that afternoon. Uh, so she agrees. He tells Mary to go with her. Branson says that this is classic stag party stuff. Uh, so Edith is like, so then it's a prank? And Branson says, well, she that whoever it is is sure. He's sure that whoever pulled this prank is regretting it. I thought... No, no, no. No, no, yeah, you're right. You're I right. thought... 
Yep. Look, Edith is just dumb. Right. And Branson is like, yeah, uh, he banged this lady. Okay. And I, he yeah. is regretting that now. That's, yeah. I, I agree. I just wrote it down wrong. Uh, Edith says that if he is regretting it, uh, just, you know, regretting it wouldn't be enough for her. And Branson also points out that it is the case that Lord Cinderby does not want this marriage to happen. Edith wonders if he would do such a thing, and Branson says that she would be surprised the things that people will do in situations like this. Uh, yeah, remember when he tried to marry your sister? Yeah. <laughs> remember when he tried to dump all that crap on some British officer? Oh my god. Yeah. Wow. The times we've had. What a show. <laughs> what a country. <laughs> Mary comes back and says that Rose is talking to Atticus and they're going to be meeting at three. In the servants' hall, Carson announces that there will be no upstairs dinner as the family will be at the Cinderbees. Carson can't see why they bothered with the extra footman uh, because it was your idea, dude. Yeah, for real. Mrs. Hughes says that it's very unusual for the groom's parents to entertain like this. Uh, it seems foreign. Carson says maybe that sort do things differently, then says he could be accused of many things, but not prejudice. So this is the, I'm not racist, but yeah. of the day. Mrs. Hughes suggests that he lacks self-knowledge, which, yeah, doy. <laughs> Danker asks Carson if Andy can have some time off. Because, but no, she's like, oh, I heard everybody here doesn't work. <laughs> right. Carson's shocked, but says, okay, if they're back by 10, Thomas asks Danker what she's going to show Andy, and Danker wants to know what he told Thomas. Thomas just says that he didn't enjoy himself, and Danker hopes that Andy's stronger than that. So, is she pimping him out? Like, what happened? (laughs) Daisy, Mosley, and Baxter are strolling through a park. Mosley is talking about how he likes smaller museums, like this Wallace Collection or one, some museum near The Hague. Daisy asks if he's been to Holland, but he's just read about this museum. He says he likes being near the paintings. Baxter agrees. Daisy says that she feels like she's been down a coal hole all her life, and somebody's opened the lid and brought her out into the sunlight. You have to pay the troll toll <laughs> if you want to get at this coal hole. That's that's true. <laughs> Mostly says that's gratifying, but Daisy says that she's resentful. Now she feels like her old life was a prison, and she has to go back to it. Mostly says he doesn't want to feel like he's made things worse. Although, I don't know how he knows what it's feel like. Yeah, like, this must be a new sensation for you. <laughs> and Baxter interrupts to point out Rose, who is yelling at Atticus on a park bench. Mostly says to leave them to it. Great advice. Mm-hmm. All servants should follow it. Uh, and people upstairs, frankly. Yeah. Really, everybody should just not do anything. <laughs> right. I mean, except not in the way that they do in this episode. Yeah. Look, it's very complicated. It's calculus. <laughs> Baxter says that you're never safe until the ring is on your finger. Uh, Mosley asks if Baxter wants to be safe, and she says that she might. Ew. Yeah. Gross. Nobody wants Molkster. <laughs> Bolsley? <laughs> See? It's terrible. Lord Cinderby sits at a desk uh, looking at the pictures and asks Atticus if he believes that he, Lord Cinderby, would stoop so low. Atticus is satisfied it was not a prank. Uh, he says Lord Cinderby is opposed to the marriage more than he's let on to Rose or her family. And then Lord Cinderby says he's against it uh, because his family has achieved a great deal for their people. And he wants to throw that away for this little shiksa. And Atticus flips his lid yeah. because sex in the city has not happened yet. <laughs> right. And Lord Cinderby says he doesn't mean to insult Rose. Although I looked it up on Wikipedia. Okay. And shiksa was like a big deal insult for a long, long time. Okay. Like that it's, was... been, it's been kind of reclaimed. 
claimed right because i 20th century yeah because i thought of it as a more just neutral description but no, clearly from the reaction much, yeah i mean yeah. In, in some polish communities there's a word i forget how it's it's not quite shikska i think it's shiska uh-huh but it's sort of like uh a cross between that and like a snot-nosed brat mm. essentially yeah um and you sometimes would call jewish teenagers in your community that mm. as an insult so mm. anyway Okay, so Lord Cinderby's main concern is that Rose is Anglican and her children will also be Anglican. And he says the second Lord Cinderby will be Jewish, but the third will not. And the family will be just another dynasty. Right. And Atticus says the children will be brought up with both sides of their heritage, which is very uh, modern of them. Yeah. And Lord Cinderby says that the point is they won't be Jewish because their mother isn't Jewish. And Atticus says that they may choose to convert. And Lord Cinderby says how easy you make it sound and how little you've had to fight. Yeah. Which I think is interesting because I think it casts this... In a more nuanced light than mm-hmm. this show is generally capable of. Right, right. Um, because his point is, has the first Lord Cinderby, and you know, and his family from generations back, before mm-hmm. they got this uh, lordship, you know, had to overcome all this prejudice, and now his son is reaping all the benefits of that, and then throwing his identity away, essentially. Right. Um, and you know, and at the same time, you know, it's easy to sympathize with both of their points of view. Yeah. Because Atticus is like, I fell in love with this person. What am I supposed to do? Whereas Laura Cinderby is like, well, uh, my life's been really hard, dude. Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard for me to watch you do this when I thought the whole point right. was that we would be in this position and that our people would start to have a better position. Right. Right. Lady Cinderby comes in to say they have to go down to dinner because everybody's there. And Atticus says that he needs Lord Cinderby's word that he wasn't involved. And Lord Cinderby says, of course he wasn't pretty convincingly. Yeah. Yeah. There's little doubt in a sitting room. Rose tells Mary, Edith and Branson that Atticus says it was a practical joke, but she doesn't think so. She thinks either lying, Atticus is lying and it really did bang that floozy or somebody is trying to stop the wedding. Lady Cinderby comes in and takes Rose to introduce her to some cousin and Edith is also summoned by someone. Which was bizarre. Yeah, it was. (laughs) Branson says that they'd better try and... Maybe it's one of her publishing employees. Yeah, it could be. Branson says they'd better try and figure this thing out before the whole thing hits the rocks. I'm like, how come every time they go to London, they involve having to sol- they end up having to solve a mystery involving Rose? Uh, because she's the only interesting person left on the show. Yeah, that's a good point. Anyway, Mary says that everything is hitting the rocks. Branson says that that sounds sad. And Mary says that she's sad because she's already lost Sybil. She is losing Rose. And she will shortly be losing Branson and Sibby. Branson says he must live his life. Mary says yes, but she's leaving her, he's leaving her alone with Edith. And when he reads that she is on trial for murder, it will be his fault. <laughs> yes. Uh, great. Fine. Yeah. Like, move to Boston, Branson. Yeah. Do it. Go over there. It'll be your fault, but you know what? You won't have to deal with it. You really won't. Yeah. It's really difficult to do uh, transatlantic travel right now. Yeah. <laughs> Atticus is talking to Rose and he says maybe it wasn't a joke, but what's important is that Rose believes him. She says that she does, but it's almost worse this way. Uh, that someone... Oh, yeah, that somebody wants to keep them apart so badly. Right. Meanwhile, across the room, <laughs> McGee is asking Shrimpy about India and he says Bombay is a marvelous city, but he's not sure how long British, British India has to go uh, because old-timey people didn't <laughs> know stuff. Actually, this is saying old-timey people did know stuff. Right, that is. Which is worse. Yeah, it is. Um, Isabel says that they'd heard about that terrible Amrit... Amritsar. Amrits- uh, okay. Isabel says they'd heard about that terrible Amritsar business, and Shrimpy agrees it was a very unfortunate incident ordered by a foolish man. And then Lord Cinderby says that General Dyer was just doing his duty. 
Shrimpy says he hasn't got that quite right, and Lord Cinderby says they're each entitled to their opinion. And Lord Grantham, in the dickish part of this exchange, says, I am hesitant to point out that Shrimpy knows India, and you don't. And like, yes, but like, that doesn't mean nobody else can have an opinion. That is what an opinion is, you see. Fair enough. Uh, Fair enough. Well, regardless of opinion, that brings us to the first of our two recurring segments, Tom Repeats History, with our very own Tom. Welcome, Tom. Thanks. You're welcome. (laughs) See, because what you'll find here is that they are each entitled to their opinion, but Lord Cinderbees is wrong. Oh, really? Yeah. Like, it's very wrong. I mean, I knew nothing about this. Right. And I was just sort of reflexively siding with Lord Cinderby. Yeah, but he's way off base on this one. So the Amritsar Massacre, also more commonly known, I think, as the Jallianwala Bagh Massacre. Uh, that sounds like a very racist name. Right. <laughs> That's It's named after the place that it took place. Oh. Yeah. Well, I was thinking of, uh, what is it, Wog? Yeah, yeah Wog and, and Walla. But yeah, that's that's the actual name. It's not an English-like <laughs> derived. Anyway. Uh, the point is, it, uh, it was 1919 that this happened, uh, so about five years prior to the current events. But sort of the background was there had been a lot of uh, unrest during World War One. Germany had been working with Indian nationalists just as they had been with Irish nationalists. So the, uh, the British Raj or whatever was all fairly jumpy. And so this one guy, uh, as that they mentioned, Brigadier General Reginald Dyer, was stationed in Amritsar, and he became convinced that there was some major uprising planned. And so he posted some, like, notifications that, like, with a curfew and banned all meetings. But the notice was not very widely disseminated. And this was the day of Baisaki, which is apparently the main festival for Sikhs, which I didn't know. Uh, But a bunch of villagers had gathered in the bog, which I believe was a garden. Hearing about this... Brigadier General Dyer went with 50 uh, Gurkha riflemen and ordered them to shoot into the crowd. What? Uh, they fired for about 10 minutes until they'd about run out of ammunition, uh, firing 1,650 rounds into the crowd, focusing their fire on the uh, exits where people were trying to flee. The exact number of people killed is not known. The official British sources reported 379 dead, but other sources agree it was probably significantly more than that. Wow. He did not, he also did not do anything at all to get any sort of treatment for the wounded. Wow. So, I mean, in the sense that he was doing his duty as a horrible, uh, imperialist, sure. Yeah. I mean, it was just straight up. I, he, and he, he, And what happened was, I mean, at first, he was generally praised and taken at his word that there had been something Mm -hmm. planned. Uh, But about a year later, he was censured and and forced into retirement by the House of Commons, uh, largely because once, you know, when they brought him in to sort of question him about it, he did not do very well for himself. Yes, he said that he had come to know about the meeting that was happening at 12.40 that day, but didn't do anything to prevent it. He said that he had gone to it with the deliberate intention of opening fire if he found a crowd, saying that if he had dispersed them without firing, they would have come back again and laughed, and he would have made a fool of himself. He uh, felt that if the passage had been sufficient to allow his armored cars to get in there, he would also have used machine guns. 
in which case the casualties would have been much higher. And he said that his intentions had been to strike terror throughout the Punjab and thus reduce the moral stature of the rebels. He did not stop the shooting when the crowd began to disperse because he thought it was his duty to keep shooting and that you know just shooting a little bit would not do any good. What an insane person. Yeah. When asked about whether he made any effort to tend to the wounded after the shooting, he says, certainly not. It was not my job. Hospitals were open and they could have gone there. So, yeah. What uh, year did this happen? This is 1919 and that okay. commission was in 1920. It's weird that they're only just now talking about it. Well, you know, that's true. Uh, like, but- surely there had been another atrocity. <laughs> between 1919 and 1924 possibly but uh in any case he did you know continue to be the conservatives and and like lord cinderby in this case you know in the house of lords in particular there tended to continue to be a fair amount of support for him and his actions on the general basis that you know needed to show them who was boss and that sort of thing well like the people who think you know torture is fine right it was the same sort of thing and lord cinderby is clearly on that side in this well uh so much for suddenly having a lot of sympathy for the dude yeah um but i think i appreciate seeing somebody having an abhorrent but non-anachronistic yes conservative belief you know even if it's not one of our you know main cast it is you know most rich people would have been pretty much oh, yeah. on on still on that side. I mean, maybe less so by this point, it being five years later. But yeah, I mean, in any case, that you know, people debate exactly how much Indian independence was inevitable anyway. But this was a hugely motivating factor, mm-hmm. and to the extent that keeping the Indians down was General Dwyer's Dyer's goal, uh, it completely backfired. Well, and I mean, just going back to sort of the context for this, it's not like Shrimpy is like, you know, this was a terrible event and a monster ordered it. He said it's an unfortunate incident ordered by a foolish man. Right. Which is the sort of yeah moderate, like, oh, you know, let's uh, not take sides here. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, because Isabel's the only one who condemns it outright. Right, You know, because right. she's busy, you know, donating to Doctors Without Borders or whatever. <laughs> right. Um, Meddlers Without Borders. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Tom. You're welcome. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. Back to the episode, Mary is sitting by the Dowager Countess, who says she looks very serious. Uh, and for once, Mary does not say, do I? Uh, which is very welcome. Yeah. But she asks the Dowager Countess if she thinks Lord Cinderby would try anything horrible to stop the wedding. Again, just for context, uh, these <laughs> photos of Atticus with a floozy, horrible. Uh, the Amrit Sar business, uh, unfortunate. Right. So. Just to just, get our moral yeah, calculus so all, yeah. lined up. Yeah. The Dowager Countess says that Lord Cinderby would certainly like it stopped. Mary says that he loves Atticus. And the Dowager Countess says that love is a far more dangerous motive than dislike. Yeah. Sounds good. Downstairs, Danker is trying to badger Andy into going out with her again, despite his protests that she never even talked to him once they got there. I was like, where? Like, well, of course I didn't. You were busy with the clients I procured. Like, <laughs> um, dis- and Dankers just says, oh, go and get... <laughs> Danker just says, oh, go get changed. And Andy does. Like, he really could just be like, no. Is he one of the robots? <laughs> Maybe that's it. He doesn't seem to have free will. No. Anyway, Thomas asks Danker why she can't pick on someone her own age. 
She says that Andy will have fun once he gets there, but Thomas says that she's a bad influence. Denker says that in that case, she suspects they have something in common. Waka waka. Yeah. In the kitchen, Mrs. Patmore asks why Daisy's so gloomy. She also does not say, am I? Right. Well done. Yeah. And she says that the museum showed her what she's been missing before she started studying. She thought that history, art, or art like that were from the... or for the family, not for her. And then Molesley points out that surely it's a good thing. But Daisy says she only now sees how empty her life is. And Baxter says she's an artist herself, pointing out the wedding cake. Which is very nice. Uh, which I hope this wedding goes off because <laughs> they already made the cake. Yeah. Daisy wonders what's the point, And Patmore reminds her that the point of her studying was that she owns a farm. <laughs> But Daisy says she'd still be better off studying in London with galleries and libraries. And I'm not even sure that's true. Right. Like, I get what they're saying. Mm-hmm. But, like, if she just, like, wants to, like, learn that stuff, great. Yeah. But also, you don't need that to run a farm. You don't. I mean, if you just want to be a more educated right. person, great. But you can't act like, you know, you know, going and looking at, you know, uh, was Matisse around? At this point, uh, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna try uh, Adela Francesca. Well, there you we go. We know he's around. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know that doesn't really like help you. You know, with the Tamworths or whatever. Anyway, she says she could get a job in London. Mrs. Tamworth's like, yeah, of course. Like, what are you even talking about? And then Daisy immediately says she's handing in her notice, shocking everyone. Right. Uh, Mrs. Patmore is very taken aback and Daisy says Mrs. Patmore has been very good to her and she'll be sad to say goodbye, but she thinks it's right that she should move to London for the next phase of her life. Uh, also unclear on how old Daisy is at this point. Yeah, that's true. Because again, like I got the sense that she was at least in sort of her like mid to late teens in the early episodes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, how old are you, dude? Yeah. Very hard to say. Well, she's a widow. I know. Mary and Shrimpy are walking around. Shrimpy asks if Rose has brushed off Floozy Gate, and Mary says yes, but who would do such a thing? She says that the Dowager thinks Lord Sindermay might have, and Which one- I think is extrapolating a I bit far. I agree. That's a bit of a misrepresentation. the Dowager Countess did not know what had happened, mm-hmm. so you can't really take her word on anything. Agreed. Anyway, she wonders if they should challenge Lord Cinderby, uh, but then Lord Grantham interrupts to offer them a nightcap. Mary accepts. Shrimpy and Susan decline. In the servants' hall, Carson asks where Danker and Andrew are. <laughs> oh, right. I forgot how he doesn't use nicknames. Right. Thomas says they aren't back from wherever they were. Carson is very pissed because he specifically said everybody had to be back by 10. Yeah. Anna says she's sure they won't be long because, you know, in spite of everything, she really <laughs> believes people are good Carson literally harumphs <laughs> and walks out. And then Barrow points out that Danker isn't under Carson and Andy's just a temp. So Carson can't do much. Uh, Mrs. Patmore says Danker is using Andy. And we're like, but in what way? I know. Barrow doesn't like it. And uh, Mrs. Patmore then offers everyone cocoa. Great. So as Patmore is walking back to the kitchen, Daisy follows to say that she could have gotten the cocoa and would like that would normally be her thing. But Patmore says that she has to get used to doing without Daisy. Daisy says, don't be like that. And Patmore says, I'm not like anything. Oh, God. Breaking up is so hard to do. It really is. It actually really is. <laughs> Susan, oh, speaking of which, <laughs> Susan enters her room to find Shrimpy, and he says he was waiting for her. She can't think why. <clears throat> Shrimpy asks if she enjoyed the evening, and she hated it having to play act in front of those people. Mm. Shrimpy says it's not for much longer, and Susan asks if he knew that Ann Melford was Jewish. He says he neither knew nor didn't know, which is a weird way of putting it. I think he meant to say, I don't care. Right. 
Uh, Susan says there's no need for his pseudo tolerance, which doesn't seem like pseudo. I mean, right. I think he has made a potentially difficult adjustment. Right. But, but that's it not doesn't, Susan just thinks yeah. that anybody who's tolerant is just being politically correct. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Shrimpy says he doesn't feel as she does about it, and she says nor about anything else. Shrimpy says he doesn't want any more of her tricks, and she claims innocence, but Shrimpy threatens to tell Rose. Susan still pretends not to know what he means, so he says that she's the one who set up Atticus. He says Rose was too smart to fall for it, but she'd still be pissed if she knew it was Susan. He then pulls out their checkbook and says he telephoned the firm that she paid. She goes to grab it, and he says, get down, you cat, which is like the most Shakespearean thing they've ever said on this show. (laughs) Uh, I think it's because they aren't allowed to say bitch. I guess. And it also didn't seem like he would call her a bitch. No, I, you're right. Like, He's I, too... As, as bad as their relationship is, it doesn't seem like they swear at each other. Right. Well, and it, there may have been some point back in India before they actually decided that they yeah. really had to get that, that it might have happened. But at this point... relatively low stakes. Yeah, when he just... He's he's moved on from her and he's just waiting till he never has to, you know, get that cat off of him again. Get down, you cat. <laughs> Susan asks if it means anything to him that they've lost their money position and now Rose will be an outcast. And this is another weird thing because she says that, you know, everything the children were expecting is gone. And I'm like, I thought you only had one kid. That's my understanding as well. I don't know what she's talking about. Yeah. If so, why is the other one not invited to this wedding? Also, where's Rosamond? Yeah. Shouldn't she be around sticking her ugly hat into everything? (laughs) She's home with a hat related injury. I'm sorry, Rose. (laughs) It's my hat, you see. (laughs) Uh, Shrimpy says, you know, it's not going to be easy for Rose, but nobody's life is easy. Uh, You know, the unspoken subtext being, uh, look how great we're doing. And we did everything, quote unquote, correctly. Mm -hmm. Shrimpy says not to mention the divorce until the marriage is done or he will tell Rose that she was the one who set her up. Right. In the sitting room, Lord Grantham announces that he has decided what to do about the cottages. Oh, thank God. Yeah. He's going to sell the Della Francesca. Boo! (laughs) He's gotten an estimate from Sotheby's, and it'll fetch quite a pretty penny. Mary Mary asks if he's sure. He says he doesn't enjoy it as he did, and that his father told him that he should only ever sell for a purpose, and this... This purpose is the good of the village. Or, uh, you know, paying off yet another failed investment. Right. Branson is glad and he steps aside with Mary and McGee tells Lord Grantham that she spoiled the painting for him. Lord Grantham says yes, but not in the way she thinks. He says that every time he looks at it, he is reminded that he didn't trust her and he is angry with himself. And McGee smiles. Man, this is great. Listen, Lord Grantham's doing a great job digging himself out of his donk hole. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but he really is. It's very nice. Uh, the Dowager Countess Isabel and Rose discuss Floozy Gate. I wonder if there is a scene where Isabel and uh, the Dowager find out about it. Right. That is in the U.S. version and not this version. Yeah. Because we don't see them finding out about it, really. Agreed. Uh, the Dowager Countess says it's the product of a nasty mind. And Rose is shocked that anyone could want her to be so unhappy, which is kind of Rose's thing. Like, yeah. She's, she's pretty like, la, la, la. <laughs> 
Uh, she excuses herself. Isabel says that this is what troubles her about Murdy, that his sons would hate for them to be happy. And the Dowager asks why she should let them determine her future. Carson comes up and tells the Dowager that Danker is not well, so Baxter will look after her, uh, which is kind of a wash. Yeah. <laughs> and the Dowager Countess asks if Danker will be all right. Carson says it's nothing serious. Now, yeah. with a bit of a look. Mm-hmm. Branson tells Mary that now he has a plan. Start the new cottages, find a new agent, and then off for America. Mary says that surely that will all take months, and Branson suggests that he stay for Christmas, uh, given that they always have a bunch of exciting things going on around Christmas <laughs> for some reason. Mary says it's a dagger in her heart, and she doesn't know what she'll do without him. Branson asked if she ever would have thought of saying that back when he was driving her around. Mary laughs and remembers how and Sybil got evening pajamas, and Granny almost fainted. Granny did not almost faint. I, that is not Granny's thing. That's uh, that's how Mary remembers all it. All right, fine. <laughs> Branson says that they have memories. Mary says he's going to take them away to Boston, and he says he will cherish them. Like, did she know that, mem- like, it's not the giver. <laughs> like, she has those memories, too. <laughs> also, I'd like to point out that earlier when Mary was talking to Branson about, you know, Sybil's gone, and uh, right. uh, Rose is leaving, at no point did she mention my beloved first husband, uh, suddenly died, cut down in the prime of life, and I also miss him very much. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, is that the, like, is that how it, it goes? Like, is this the I, equivalent of the two and a half men finale, which apparently <laughs> was all about Charlie Sheen saying winning still? Oh, wow. And that was like four years ago. Yikes. Like, this is not. No, no, I think, uh, I mean, I think that's just a little more, uh, Look, I think that Dan Stevens pissed some people off, fairly or unfairly. Oh, yeah. I, I, I can't judge whether they should be pissed off, but I think they are. Yeah, and I'm always I'm always very curious what the battle lines amongst the cast were mm. there, because they seem like a relatively tight-knit cast. Agreed, yeah. Um, when you see them on Instagram and whatnot. <laughs> right. And uh, I'm just, I'm curious how angry the rest of the cast were. I mean, it certainly sounds like, you know, uh, Alan Leach has kind of tipped over and again completely understanding why you'd want to leave at this point yeah we would like to leave. <laughs> right <laughs> we are done we are done with like this whole world yeah we just if we could get that you know if we could get a better offer like that hotel podcast oh know. yeah <laughs> oh god that hotel podcast would be so dope <laughs> travelchannel.com podcasts <laughs> call us um no but anyway but i mean you know look i mean you know sometimes you're just doing a thing for a while yeah yeah all right, whatever, Alan Leach. But I mean, we well, haven't just, even heard if he's actually leaving. You right, know what I mean? Right. Like, I mean, they certainly. Yeah. Well, it's weird. I have no idea. Anyway, point is, nobody misses cousin Matthew. Uh, apparently. Yeah. I do sometimes when I see <laughs> clips from old seasons. I'm like, oh god, remember that? Yeah. That was the other thing I was gonna say though. This episode feels like such a rehash because you mentioned like, why do we always have to solve a mystery with Rose or uh-huh. London? And it does, it just feels exactly like the thing with, uh, the Prince of Wales and those letters yeah. to Mrs. Dudley Ward. And it's not fun this time. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, this is much more malicious. I mean, at least in that case, there was a financial motive that right. was kind of interesting. Right. And there was, you know, poker. <laughs> right. This is just horrific family dynamics coming to their, you know, natural conclusion. Yeah. Anyway, 
Let's get to our natural conclusion. In the uh, in the kitchen, Danker is singing It's a Long Way to Tipperary. It's a long way to Tipperary, which may have been the only song <laughs> that existed between the years of 1910 and 1924. It, it seems that way at that times. That and uh, If I Were the Only Girl in the World and You the Only Boy. Okay. So those two, that's it. And Danker's more in a fighting mood, so she's going with Tipperary. <laughs> Uh, Baxter is trying to shut her up. She sends Daisy to go get Hughes. Uh, the Dowager's bell rings, and Danker's like, Oh, gotta get to my lady! And Baxter's like, uh, I'll handle that. Hughes comes in and says, Really? And in front of the maids, too. The maids were loving this. Yeah. They, this is the most entertainment they've ever had. <laughs> yeah. Since they aren't allowed to listen to the radio. <laughs> no one's allowed to listen to the radio in the Forbidden West Wing. <laughs> That radio belonged to the first Mrs. De Winter. <laughs> Denker doesn't give a tinker's cuss about the maids. Which is a phrase I've never heard before. Agreed. I wonder what a tinker's cuss is. Uh, damn, I think. Oh, That's, really? I, I don't know. Or maybe like, tin bitch! <laughs> or, ow! <laughs> Hughes asks where Andy's been. He says she doesn't want to know. Uh, she just asked you, dude. Yeah, she's in charge. She should want to know. Anyway, she sends him to get changed and get upstairs. Daisy suggests getting getting some coffee into Danker, although Danker seems energetic enough. Yeah. Like, has she been drinking vodka Red Bulls? Like, she might have been. Yeah. We don't know where they've been. And no. They could have been in the future. <laughs> That's true. Andy is a robot. We have to go back, Danker. <laughs> back. To the future. <laughs> and get hammered. <laughs> oh, my God. Daisy goes into the kitchen for aforementioned coffee and finds Mrs. Patmore crying. Uh, this is a very affecting scene. It is. Patmore says not to mind her, but admits that she's crying because she doesn't want Daisy to leave, but she'll get over it. Daisy says she'll work out a month's notice, and Mrs. Hughes comes in to say Danker's gone up, and they should too. And Mrs. Patmore agrees and heads out. Mrs. Hughes asks if something's happened. Daisy says, not yet. Yeah. I'm like, why are you all not communicating? Yeah, why can't you say, like... like I gave my notice. Right. I'm going to leave she, it And month. she's sad about that. That all makes sense. There's nothing scandalous. That makes more sense than most of the conversations that have happened <laughs> in this episode. Right. Carson meets Andy in a stairwell, says they thought he'd run away to sea. Andy says that... Dan Carson has weird ideas about what people do. <laughs> he does. Andy says that Danker was taken ill. Carson wishes she'd been taken away by men in white coats. Thomas tells Carson that they'll manage, and so Carson harumphs off and asks, and Thomas asks Andy what happened. He says that Danker took him to a horrible basement club, and Thomas says, oh, I bet you gambled then, and he says he did, he's lost all his savings. Thomas bets that Danker didn't lose a thing, uh, asks if she made a play for him. Like, like wink, wink, nudge, nudge. <laughs> right. He says she just sat there and drank, which the evidence seems to back up. Uh, Thomas says that next time he's coming with them, and he's fairly sure that this time Andy will enjoy it. Okay. Going to a lovely little place called the Kit Kat Club. <laughs> I know everybody there. Oh, my God. <laughs> Why doesn't Thomas just go hang out in Weimar, Germany? He'd be much happier. I mean, for a while. <laughs> right. No, but, you know, he'd be just like, uh, you know, Cliff slash Brian, mm -hmm. depending whether you're talking the stage or the movie version of Cabaret, because, you know, he'd have his British passport. Right. And he'd be like, uh, shit's getting weird. I'm going to bounce, y'all. Yeah. Sorry, his British or American passport. Again, right. depending on the version. <laughs> 
uh, at the registry office, Mary, Mary's great in this episode, but she's also weird. She's like, oh, I suppose you've never been to a registry office, Dowager Countess. Yeah. And uh, the Dowager Countess says she's wrong. She attended the wedding of Lord Roseberry and Hannah Rothschild in 1878. Yeah. Which was a real thing, a very, like, groundbreaking, you know interfaith marriage but you know hannah rothschild was one of the rothschilds Mm -hmm. also it wasn't it wasn't her looks that got her the marriage i have to say oh bummer (laughs) i looked her up on the wikipedia what did she look like uh she was just really big and plain oh dear well but hopefully they were very happy well after she died he really seemed to like be completely disoriented oh man yeah i always hate to hear about that yeah although it's it's hard to tell whether it was because he loved her and he missed her or because he was just dumb and she provided all the brains of his Mm. of the operation so i guess we'll never know yeah cousins do you know (laughs) we want to hear their story (laughs) are you the current lord roseberry (laughs) do you have access to old diaries Uh, Michi says it seems sad in a way, and the Dowager Countess says marrying a Rothschild brings consolations, mm-hmm. which we just said. Yeah. Isabel asks if Susan's all right because she's wandering around like a woman possessed. <laughs> and Lord Grantham asks McGee to go help her, but sadly it's too late. Uh, Susan. Yeah. With all the, uh, tact of Bertha Rochester. Yeah. Or my mother. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, you know. <laughs> announces that she's got something to say (laughs) jerry blank style the dowager countess says susan we don't want any deathbed confessions and to remember that this is not her day but susan says it's time and announces that she's in the process of getting a divorce and it will be all over the papers and lord cinderby starts sputtering but uh lady cinderby Mm -hmm. steps up like a champ and says thank you lady flincher or may i call you susan we are forewarned and now we are forearmed and then Lord Cinderby and Atticus splutter at each other, but then Lord Lady Cinderby very quietly tells Lord Cinderby that if he does anything to stop this marriage, she will leave him. And then she smiles at Susan because game, set, motherfucking match. Yeah. Fuck you, Susan. Yeah. Lady Cinderby is the hero of this Honestly, episode. Honestly, can we just like next year, okay, we want Madge and the robots. Mm-hmm. Uh, we want Lady Cinderby all the time. Right, definitely. Uh, who else did we say? Maybelline Fox. Oh yeah, Maybelline Fox. Can yeah. we just, why don't we have that? Yeah. And you know, Isabel and Dowager Countess's uh, ongoing romantic exploits. Yeah. Done. I'm pretty much over the rest of these people. Yeah. I, I approve. And McG can be like a special guest star. Oh yeah, sure. On a stairway elsewhere in the registry office, Rose tells Shrimpy that he surely didn't expect to be uh, marrying his daughter off at a registry office, but he says he never anticipated lots of things, but he is happy about this if she is. She says that Atticus was blameless in Flusygate. Shrimpy says that he knows that without a doubt. She asks who it was then, because Shrimpy makes it clear that he knows, and Shrimpy says, you don't know him. Rose says, well, she doesn't want to know, and adds that this, uh, at the registry, is the real wedding, not the church blessing. This is when they become man and wife. And Shrimpy hopes that she will be very, very happy. That brings us to our next recurring segment, Fashion Backwards, with our very own bridal buff, Kelly. Thank you, Tom. All right, so we had covered Edwardian weddings way, way back. Yeah, Uh, yeah. Probably Series 2. Yeah. That's when most of the weddings were happening. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe not. I don't know. 
series two or three. Three was when all the weddings happened. Right. So that must have been it. Yeah. Um, so in keeping with, uh, things having changed after the war, mm-hmm. uh, weddings in the 1920s became somewhat less formal. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were actually a lot of gimmick weddings, which I thought was really interesting. People would get married, you know, um, at the top of a platform, you know, like stunt weddings. Right, right, right. Basically, which I thought was very interesting. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, the 20s were really very modern in terms of how they approached nuptials. Mm-hmm. You know, it was it was a very prosperous time and a lot more people were actually going to the justice of the peace rather than going to a minister mm-hmm. and having these big church weddings. And I didn't find anything in particular that, you know... uh Indicated that it was because of interfaith marriages, but I mean, you, right. you've got to figure that had something to do with it. Yeah, at least a little and bit. And plus, I mean, just, you know, after a war like that, you're going to have kind of widespread disillusionment with organized religion. Yeah, yeah. Um, particularly, you would think, among the men mm-hmm. who had been in the trenches. Yeah. Um, yeah, and there was drinking at weddings and, you know, very body humor was bandied about. And, uh, brides even started to move away from having their fathers give them away mm. at their weddings. Um, obviously that was the old rose. Right. The new rose is, is being a lot more, uh, <laughs> tied to tradition. Yeah. But, um, oh, and some of these, you know, stunt weddings were like getting married atop of a plat, a flagpole or getting married <laughs> underwater and like a bunch of like weird, you know, things like that. Yeah. Um, some brides, rather than wearing white, would wear black velvet. Oh. Uh, presumably that would be more popular with the floozies. Because it, it, to me, it seems, this isn't indicated in my research, but it seems like if you're wearing black velvet to a wedding, you're saying, I definitely boned before yeah. this day. Could be. Um, and proud of it. Yeah. Uh, actually, there were uh, the two most popular wedding songs. So there were ah, two oh. songs besides <laughs> It's a Long Way to Tipperary <laughs> and If I Were the Only Girl in the World and You the Only Boy. I Love You Truly and Oh Promise Me, which kind of sound like Elvis songs to me. Well, many of them do. Yeah. Okay. Um, so it's at this point, actually, that um, you start seeing matched engagement and wedding bands. Mm. But do you think it points to a certain uh egalitarianism which makes sense with sort of the new woman and right, you know, right. people having careers outside of their families and things like that yeah yeah and so um engagement rings sort of morphed into square or lace mounts and then uh platinum or white gold was more popular than yellow gold mm-hmm. and if you ever have met a friend um who has a a vintage wedding ring from a grandmother mm-hmm. uh from this time period as my grandmother did um you see like my my current my current grandmother <laughs> uh, my grandmother who is still living has that style mm-hmm. yeah and you saw also a lot more elopements um you know and i think that this sort of you know uh jaunty stag party that we see is very much of of the times yeah in terms of what's allowable right well certainly lady cinderby gave the impression that this was a somewhat new yeah she had no idea what to even call it yeah um yeah and basically this is a, a period of time where the actual fashion of the wedding dresses are very tied to the fashions of the day still mm. and that trend continued up until the 1960s at which point you saw this sort of reversion to the more traditional um victorian styles right because which, that was like queen victoria kind of pioneered the what's sort of now the standard yes, wedding dress correct. right yeah and I just, I find that really interesting because that happens concurrently with the sexual revolution. Right. And yeah. has basically continued 
until right. the present day. Yeah. I yeah. mean, any, any wedding dress that you see generally isn't super contemporary. Right. There are contemporary dresses, but even like the contemporary dresses are, they tend to be sort of, uh, modeled on some other time period. Right. Like even that wedding dress in the video for November rain. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I also found some interesting stats on divorce. Mm. Um, in the 1920s, uh, 7.7 out of 1,000 marriages ended in divorce. Oh. I'm not totally sure where that number came from apart from Yahoo Answers. <laughs> so take that with a grain of salt. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know, you know, I don't know if that is just, you know, in the 1920s, that's how many, you know, per thousand. Right. Um, but it's not, you know, it's the, the difficulty with uh, divorce statistics is it's like, okay, when do these marriages begin? How are we interpreting this data? Yeah. That seems like we need a demographer on this. Yeah. Well, we know some. We do. We, we could definitely <laughs> go there if we wanted to. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I found that was really fun is the Emily Post entry on wedding day etiquette from 1922. So it's about two years before. Yeah. Um, so I just pulled a couple of interesting things. Uh, this wedding was a very lush at-home wedding. Mm-hmm. Um, this did not really have instructions for what to do if you were having a Justice of the Peace wedding per se. Right. And we actually see very little of the ceremonies. Um, yeah, yeah. So I have no idea how all of that worked. But it looks like based on Rose's gown... Mm-hmm. That she's wearing, that she chose to be married in a traveling dress, um, which is a bit odd because they, like they're not having the the church blessing until later, right? But uh, Emily Post says that if a bride chooses to be married in a traveling dress, she has no bridesmaids, though she often has a maid of honor. A traveling dress is either a tailor made if she's going directly on a boat or train, or a morning or afternoon dress, or whatever she would wear away after a big wedding. Mm-hmm. And that is a tradition in and of itself. Um, and one that we didn't do at our wedding, but this was done at my cousin's wedding where like the bride like leaves and then comes back in a different outfit Oh, and yeah. then they bounce. Um, I did find this to be interesting. Um, the bride's table. So basically it's like the cake table. Okay. Um, but it is usually in the dining room or in a room apart. So depending on where they were having the reception, you know, if they were having it at Grantham house, yeah, this would have been there. Um, so that is where the beautiful cake that Daisy made would have been. Excellent. Um, obviously white garlands or sprays or other arrangement of white flowers. And in the center is chief ornament is an elaborately iced wedding cake. On the top, it has a bouquet of white or silver flowers or confectioner's quaint dolls representing the bride and groom. Uh, it looked like flowers were what Daisy had prepared. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the top is made to be lifted off for the bride and groom. And then the bride always would cut the cake. Hmm. And then, uh, they would cut themselves a piece of cake. So at the time it was not the feeding sure. the other person, the cake. Um, and then there are, uh, potentially two sides of favors hidden in the cake, kind of like a, uh, uh, uh king cake yeah, from yeah. Mardi Gras. Uh, so there will be a, a demarcation, uh, indicating where the ushers and the bridesmaids can get their favors from. Mm. Again, it looks like Rose did not have any bridesmaids. Agreed. So I don't think they would have gone this elaborate. Yeah. Um, but articles wrapped in silver foil have been pushed to the bottom of the cake at intervals. Uh, the bridesmaids find a 10 cent piece for riches, a little gold ring for first to be married, a thimble or a little parrot or a cat for old maid. Glad they have <laughs> options. And a wishbone for the luckiest. I 
hope that's like a fake wishbone and not <laughs> right. like why does this cake taste like turkey <laughs> and then on the usher side if you find a button or a dog you're going to be a bachelor forever and a miniature pair of dice uh is a symbol of lucky chance in life and then the ring and the 10 cent piece mm. are the same uh, and then if a big piece of the wedding cake is left, then the bride's mother has it wrapped in tin foil and put in a sealed tin box and kept for the bride to open on her first anniversary, mm. which is something that right. is still done. Although people kind of just go back to wherever they were yeah. and they get a new cake. I did find out the origins of the wedding cake oh. uh, began in ancient Rome because brides would carry uh, wheat ears in their left hands to their weddings. And then later... Anglo-Saxon women would wear wheat made into chaplets. I don't know what a chaplet is. I assume it's like assless chaps. Uh, and anyway, but smaller. Yeah, and they um they developed the belief that a girl who ate the grains of wheat, uh, which were scattered on the ground, would dream of her future husband. And then they would uh, after that it evolved into baking a thin, dry biscuit that was broken over the bride's head and then the crumbs were divided amongst the guests which <laughs> sounds like bullshit <laughs> then the next step was you know making a cake and then having the bride cut it up for the guests so. yeah big improvement there yeah way to go everybody like well who wants to eat crumbs out of the bride's hair like uh everybody dude <laughs> well they weren't eating them out of, i know you know don't be absurd <laughs> um also Here's some etiquette around the ring. Hmm. So, okay, and uh, I might try to post this link for everybody if I can remember. Um, but it is so detailed. Like, it goes through the entire day. Like, what kind of food should be served? Who pays for what? Mm-hmm. And I'm very curious who paid for this wedding. Yeah. Whether or not it was McGee and Lord Grantham. Right. Since Shrimpy and Susan don't got no money. Yeah. Um, but... Emily Post says that when it is time for the ring, the best man produces it from his pocket. If in the handling from best man to groom to clergyman to groom again, and finally to the bride's finger, it should slip and fall, the best man must pick it up if he can without searching. If not, he quietly produces the duplicate, which all careful best men carry in their other waistcoat pocket, and the ceremony proceeds. The lost ring, or the unused extra one, is returned to the jewelers the next day. Which ring, under the circumstances, the bride keeps is a question as hard to answer as that of the lady or the tiger. Would she prefer the substitute ring that was actually the one she was married with or the one her husband bought and had marked for her? Or would she prefer not to have a substitute ring and have the whole wedding party on their knees searching? I think we know what Emily Post thinks of that. (laughs) She alone can decide. Fortunately, even if the clergyman is very old and his hand shaky, a substitute is seldom necessary. The wedding ring must not be put above the engagement ring. On her wedding day, a bride either leaves her engagement ring at home when she goes to church or wears it on her right hand. And the whole thing is that detail. Yeah. And she gets into these elaborate scenarios of like, you know, the, the bride is getting ready with her mother and her three bridesmaids and two sisters and three aunts and four (laughs) children are there. Yeah. And I'm like, where are you getting these numbers? (laughs) And everybody is like, oh, you know, Jim is her generic for the, the groom. Uh uh, Mary is her generic for the bride. And, um, which is like any proper bride has three sisters. No more, no less. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And, uh, the, the rhyme, something old, something new, something borrowed, something Uh, blue had an additional verse on the end of it that was uh and a lucky sixpence to put in your shoe Mm. i may be saying that incorrectly Mm -hmm. but i was like well i can see why we dropped that uh when we moved to you know the uh the decanate system right is that what we call it decimal (laughs) (laughs) 
but that can it could work too. <laughs> At any rate, so that is some interesting info about 1920s wedding etiquette. Yeah. And uh, which I think we can all agree, Susan just <laughs> right breaking it not all. covered by no, there's any an elaborate section. conversation guide to the wedding. Oh yeah, you are not supposed to congratulate the bride. Oh yeah, uh, which I think changed eventually because I I was given to understand when we got married that you know not like anybody cares anymore. Yeah, but yeah. The, the appropriate etiquette is to say congratulations to the bride and best wishes to the groom, hmm. unless that's reversed. Maybe so. But like basically, it was considered like uncouth to like congratulate a woman on having secured a husband. And I'm like, this is her biggest achievement. Yeah. You should be throwing that bitch a parade. Yeah. Weird. A parade that would never end. <laughs> Impossible. <laughs> well, thank you. You're welcome. It was fun. Yeah. I, uh, you know, let's renew our vows on a flagpole, baby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you would never go for that. Nah. Although you do like a view. Yeah, that's true. No, I mean, there's worse things. Susan sits next to the Dowager Countess and asks if that's it, if she's just expected to be a good loser. The Dowager says it's too late for that. And whacks her in the face <laughs> with a copy of Emily Post that she carries for just such occasions. <laughs> Rose and Shrimpy enter. Everybody stands, somewhat reluctantly in Lord Cinderby's case, but uh, they all do, and Shrimpy takes up Rose and hands her over to Atticus. Down in the servants' hall, which is so much more interesting than watching whatever, uh, you know, <laughs> vows Rose and Atticus have to say to each other. Right. Carson announces that after lunch, they'll get ready for the blessing and then the reception that afternoon, and then dinner will be a buffet of what's left over for family. Uh, this is pretty standard. Uh, this, the guide, I'll probably just keep talking about it. Sure. <laughs> um, morning weddings were still, or morning or noon weddings were still pretty common, mm-hmm. and the entirety of the reception outline is based on a sit down breakfast. Uh, reception. Uh-huh. Although there are some stipulations for how you would handle a luncheon or a standing breakfast. Mm-hmm. Um, Patmore might add some hot soup, which actually, uh, if they're doing it right, <laughs> there should just be some bouillon available. <laughs> Can't have a wedding without bouillon. I know, right? Anna says she should go and help uh, Lady Rose change. Danker, a bit worse for the wear, doesn't think it's right to wear a wedding dress for a blessing. And I'm like, I don't think it's right for you to be so drunk. (laughs) Anna says that uh, Rose won't wear a veil, which was a big deal because the veil has very, very clear religious implications. Mm. So it was like Mm -hmm. not okay for her to wear a veil. Yeah. Shouldn't have been wearing white either. Uh, I know. Well, she wasn't though. Wasn't she? Well, she might have been in the first one, but the second one is more of a cloth of gold dress. Okay. So you know, maybe oh, yeah. she's savvier than we think. Maybe. Um, her bridal wear is very unremarkable, though. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's just it's not a good time for bridal dresses. Yeah. Everything was very like cloche veil and drop waist, and I don't like either of those things. But, okay. <clears throat> At any rate, uh, Baxter says everybody should just get on and shut up. Danker is implied. <laughs> Thomas tells Danker and Andy that they should be able to go out later since they've had so much fun. He wants to come with them unless she feels worse for the wear. And she says she just has a headache and that Annie doesn't need to come. But Thomas says, oh, yeah, we'll want Andy with us. And then Mrs. Hughes comes up and asks what they're doing. Thomas says nothing. And then Mrs. Hughes tells Andy he's taking his life in his hands, hanging out with those two. Part of which, uh, okay, Andy... Why have you at no point exhibited any sort of indication that you have control of your actions? Right. Uh, why don't you just say, uh, no. Yeah. It's as simple as that. They don't have guns. No. I also like how Hughes is like, I'm going to allow this. <laughs> yeah, she certainly doesn't have much to do in this episode. No. 
Cars pull up to the church and Gillian Maybelline <gasps> Fox Maybelline Fox, whatever, Gillian. Gillian's wearing a top hat. <laughs> yeah. And I don't see any of the other guests wearing top hats. Yeah. I mean, we don't see that many of them we, outside. Yeah, so maybe they did, but, but I mean, you're it right. seems like just, you know, oh, Gilly pulled a Gilly. <laughs> Rose- I just can't believe Maybelline Fox would allow him to do anything unfashionable. Well, that's true. Rose tells Lord and Lady Cinderby that she loves Atticus and anything she can do to make him happy, she will. Lady Cinderby wishes them every blessing. Lord Cinderby is like, but he says, you know what? The thing's done. Let us go forward and hope. Which is kind of the best you can hope for right. at this point. Yeah. Branson says to Mary, look who's coming your way. And she far too enthusiastically <laughs> greets Gilly and Maybelline Fox. Yeah. Gilly asks if they're welcome. And she says, as welcome as she hopes she'll be at their wedding. And I'm like, this isn't your wedding. Right. I assume they were invited. I assume so by as well. the couple. I hope so. Uh, Branson asks if he's the only one who's embarrassed. And I'm like, why should you be embarrassed? You had nothing to do with this. Yeah. Like, I'm sorry Charles Blake isn't here to be charming. Like, just stand around and think of Solly. Yeah. <laughs> Maybelline Fox says she isn't embarrassed, and uh, she probably never is, to be honest. Yeah. They're getting married in December, and of course, both of them are invited. Mary says she's so pleased, truly. So She's not bit. at all overcompensating. <laughs> right. And it'll be in London, as Maybelline Fox says, winter weddings in the country are muddy affairs. Yeah. Also, come on. Why the fuck would she get married in the country? Yeah. She's a city mouse. Clearly. Rose tells Atticus that they'll never know who was behind Floozy Gate, but who cares? I care. I care deeply. <laughs> They agree- also, they're totally going to find out because these bitches can't keep a secret. No, you're right about that. They agree that it wasn't Lord Cinderby. Rose says that it wasn't his style. Lady Cinderby, overhearing this, says that Rose already knows Lord Cinderby better than Atticus does. Which uh, bodes well for yeah. their future together. Yeah. Edith tells Lord Grantham she's not sure the wedding is what Rose wanted, but she'll be happy. And I think it is exactly what Rose wanted. Yeah, like, Rose, I don't think Rose cared like, about having a big wedding. Or a church wedding. Oh, absolutely not. Yeah. If it was up to her, she would have had a jazz wedding. <laughs> if it was up to her, they would have been up a flagpole. <laughs> yeah. Lord Grantham agrees that two of them are well matched. He then asks Edith when she's going home, and she says, first thing. Lord Grantham says, the call of young Marigold. <laughs> yes. Uh, a book by Jack London? like <laughs> Echoing across the moors, like, right. <laughs> uh, he then sees Gilly talking to Mary, but says, Edith says to give up his dream of Gilly, because Gilly arrived with another woman. <laughs> right. Who I That's- have to say, I liked Maybelline Fox's outfit, but it seems like Gilly has had a somewhat uh, Lady Mary-ish effect on her. It could be, yeah. yeah. We'll see if we see more of her. <laughs> well, she's the second Mrs. DeWinter. <laughs> Rebecca jokes. They never get old. Uh, that's that's. We certainly hope that's true. Gilly tells Mary that things turned out as she planned, and Mary says, "Of course they did." <laughs> Mary says that Gilly was just what she needed when she needed it. Gilly says that, well, if anything, he's learned not to mess with Mary Crawley. Yeah, doy. Yeah, we all know that. Mary says everything has come right. Gilly says for him, though not necessarily for her, and uh, also Carson is watching them. Lady Cinderby tells Lord Grantham that they're renting some castle in Northumberland and wondered if the Crawleys might join them. Lord Grantham wonders if she knows what they're taking on. Uh, but Lady Cinderby says she'll telephone McGee to set the dates. Lord Grantham wanders off, right. as is his custom. And then Lady Cinderby says that that wasn't hard. And Lord Cinderby says not for him, since he had no say in it. And Lady Cinderby says that not at all. Yeah. They seem to have a very functional thing going They here. do, yeah. Um, I think there's some genuine affection for I, each other. Yeah. Although I would also say 
being that they are both Jewish, this probably was far more of an arranged marriage mm-hmm. uh, than even Shrimpy and Susan's. Potentially, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Um, but but they, I'm, I'm definitely curious to see how these two interact more yeah. in the future. Yeah, agreed. Rose walks up to Susan and says that she has heard about her declaration. Susan says that all she wants is Rose's happiness, that what she did was done from love. And Rose says that they must have different definitions of the word. And like, Rose is like cold as ice. Yeah. And rightly so. Yeah. I mean, this definitely worse than anything either of our parents pulled. <laughs> and they pulled some shit. Yeah. But nothing on this scale. Yeah. This is absurd. Yeah. If you're a parent and you're listening to this, just don't do anything. <laughs> just don't do anything for your kid's wedding. Just right. show up and smile. Yeah. Don't do anything. Mm-hmm. We implore you. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't care what they're doing. Even if they're having like a satanic ritual, <laughs> just be like, you know what? It's fine. Yeah. We're all going to be fine. Yeah. Um, a lady Manville, mm-hmm. uh, whose overbite is so pronounced she has no chin. Yeah. Uh, she asks Lord Grantham and McGee how they're bearing up. Uh, because it is, uh, some sort of funeral? Right. I don't know. McGee says that they're doing well. Manville says it must be trying, but she admires them for putting on a good face, uh, yeah. at this interfaith marriage <laughs> for someone who isn't even their child. <laughs> but McGee says, I wonder if you remember my father was Jewish. <laughs> Lady Manville says, oh, and then splutters for a bit and then sees, oh, Louis, I didn't expect to see you here and, uh, books it over there to where Louise presumably is talking shit about Jews and uh, talking up this Herr Hitler. <laughs> possibly. Or also possibly it's somebody that's never let, met Lady Manville before. It's like, Or also possibly it is someone who does not in fact exist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mary is in a uh, servant's hallway. Well, that uh, seems entirely unlike her. It does. She's brooding. Carson, Carson asks her if everything is all right and Mary says she just snuck away for a bit. Uh, she says she feels as if their household is broken up, is breaking up, but she supposes that's what happens. Especially when your husband dies in a car accident. What? Hmm? Who? Oh, nothing. Okay. <laughs> I don't drive a car. <laughs> <laughs> Carson hopes that Gilly hasn't upset her. She says, no, she's happy for them. Carson says that Gilly wasn't good enough for Mary, not by half. Mary says that nobody else agrees with him, but Carson says that she agrees with him, and he watched her realize it, realize that he wasn't up to the mark. Mary isn't sure if that's alarming or reassuring, and Carson says that it should be reassuring because he's confident she'll triumph in the end. Tom's getting all weepy. Well, it was very nice. It was just, I mean, and it was such an acknowledgement of that Gilly really wasn't up mm-hmm. to her mark. No. You know, not necessarily in any sort of absolute way one is better than the other, but he was not what she needed. No. In some dank alleyway, <laughs> Danker complains about it not being a proper wedding because who, you don't get paid to have opinions. <laughs> right. You get paid to dress an old lady, and that should be enough for you. <laughs> Thomas says he wishes them well, uh, and Danker welcomes them to the velvet violin. <laughs> right. Thomas tells Andy not to talk to him until they're at the tables. Some guy greets Danker. She says she's brought two this time. And he says to get herself a drink. Thomas asks the guy's name. And for some reason, Andy knows that it's Basil Shoot. Yeah. Which is a very on-the-nose name for somebody running a den of iniquity. <laughs> uh, he goes toward a table, says he might play pontoon, which is his game. Right. And he tells Andy not to gamble. I believe, I didn't look up the details. I believe it's a form of blackjack. Okay. In her bedroom, Mary says that that was a marathon, but a happy one. And Anna- Actually, a marathon. Oh, <laughs> you're right. 
Anna agrees. Mary adds that at least the divorce is out in the open now. Uh, Mary says that both Lord Cinderby and Susan have a reason to look down on each other. So, Oh, man. What if Shrimpy and Lady Cinderby had gotten together? I mean, that'll never happen. No, It's very complicated. (laughs) They're both pretty cool. Yeah. Hughes comes in and says that Anna's wanted downstairs. Mary's confused, but it's Viner. He's there to arrest Anna. Boo. Boo. Yeah. Anyway. Back at the Velvet Violin. Hey. Ha. Jazz. Thomas. <laughs> Thomas wins a hand and he gives his chips to Andy to pay off his bill. Andy's like, I can't accept this. Thomas is like, we're going to argue about this later. Like, how about you don't get your legs broken? <laughs> right. He's going to go see Mr. Shoot. Uh, which I keep reading is Shroot. <laughs> right. He goes up to him and asks, which of these knuckleheads is Basil Shoot? Because there's a woman at the bar boasting that she's been playing a trick on him. Uh, waiting outside for people to come in, then going in with them and claiming free drinks. Thomas points out Danker, says goodbye, and Danker's like, hey, wait! <laughs> in the alley, Andy says that Danker was using him because she thought he was too young and stupid to see her game. Thomas points out that she was right in that assessment. So next time, ask your Uncle Thomas. Look, this got completely uncreepy, and then he made it creepy again. <laughs> well, I Never just... have anyone who isn't actually your niece or nephew call you uncle or aunt anything. I know. He's trying to be a mentor. I know, but I don't call my mentors like uncle. <laughs> yeah, and then back inside, Basil, Basil helps Denker with her coat and asks if she's forgotten something. And she's like, what? I'm drunk. And he says... Uh, she has forgotten to pay her bill for three nights drinking, four pounds, ten shillings. I have no idea what the inflation rate is on that. Yeah, me neither. Anna's getting cuffed, and she says she needs to see Bates, but Viner says it's better that he hears it from Hughes so he doesn't say anything he'll regret, which, I shut up, dude. Nobody cares. <laughs> Mary says this is absurd. Viner says all the correct forms have been observed. Bates arrives and asks what's happening. Basically, everyone is downstairs. Right. Uh, no, Viner, he's, Viner hands over like the arrest warrant or whatever, which I just imagine is a you know a piece of paper that's like to whom it may concern. Please keep torturing Anne and Bates forever. Yeah, signed the king. <laughs> uh, Bates arrives and he asks what's happening. Viner says not to make trouble. Lord Grantham asks if he can stand surety for her, which is bail. I right. assume. Yeah, I would think. Uh, but a witness has ID'd Diana as being near Green when he died, which does not seem like compelling enough evidence to arrest somebody. Well, but Mary, ins- I mean, it's just the way they phrase it. Like, oh, just she was around. Right. Mary insists on telephoning their lawyer. Viner's like, fine, but you might as well wait until the morning. And Mary says she'll call now, and she's not Miss. She's Lady Mary Crawley. Viner doesn't care if she's Queen of the Upper Nile. He's going, and Anna's coming with them. Lord Grantham stops Bates from following. And this, this, folks, this is just where we're at. Yeah. I don't hate everything that happens in this episode, despite it being slow. Yeah. And, you know... There's some good. There's a lot of great stuff, but yeah. on, like, f- like really, yeah. Anna's getting arrested. Yeah, that's where we've come that's with where murder we've prison. Come. Yeah. That's how this all goes down. Yeah, I just, I'm so angry. I just I'm like- angry on behalf of Joanna Froggett. I'm yeah. angry mm-hmm. on behalf of us, the viewers. <laughs> right. I'm angry on behalf of of uh, Brendan Coyle. Coyle, who has been given nothing to do yeah. for the past three seasons. That's right. And like literally, oh, like and also Phyllis Logan, yeah, who's had to like stand by and get sucked into this, right? And given nothing else, no. And just that that Baron Fellows is sitting at his writing desk, and he's like, you know what? 
this is great. I love this idea. Everybody's going to like the fact that I've taken it in this direction. No. And just what are nobody, you thinking? Nobody, I don't know. I, honestly, seriously, if you're listening to this and you like this plot line, please send us a letter. We're yeah. open to hearing your side of things. Yeah. We just don't understand why anybody... From a production standpoint. Right. Well, again, they're rehashing that letter business. They're rehashing one of the Bates is being wrongly accused of murder. Like, if you're out of ideas, you're out of ideas. <laughs> yeah. Okay? Yeah. Uh, it's really, it's very, very frustrating. Yeah. So, back in uh, Rippin, they're unveiling the memorial. Carson reads The Ode of Remembrance, which was a, a pretty standard poem of the era. The memorial is unveiled, a bugle plays, people look on somberly, and at the end, as people are starting to go, Lord Grantham asks for their attention, so there is one more man honored here. He asks Patmore to come to him and takes her over and unveils a separate plaque commemorating Archie Philpotts. Uh, Patmore is moved. Daisy says that she is pleased for Patmore. Mason says it's just as it should be. Carson nods his approval since this was all done behind his back as he is the actual chair. Uh, yeah, I just, I, it's so amusing to me that, you know, the first episode was all about Lord Grantham being slighted by this committee <laughs> and he's like, I'll slight you good, I will. <laughs> Mason goes uh, off to see William's name on the main memorial and Lord Grantham watches Edith holding Marigold. Uh, also, I don't think this is in Ripon. This is in the village. Oh, right. I keep conflating the two, yeah, but they're they are not. not. Yeah. Ripon is a city. Yeah. Grantham is a village. My apologies. It's okay. Walking back to the house, Mrs. Patmore says it'll be a comfort to her sister, who presumably will never see this plaque. Yeah. Did anybody consider inviting her? Uh, nope. Yeah. Well, uh, it was a big fat secret. <laughs> so. Wow. Mr. Mason says Daisy will be glad to have the memorial near, and Since he, she cares so deeply no, about Daisy's William. Daisy's like, oh, I guess I'll never get away from it now. <laughs> I told you all I hated William. <laughs> Repeatedly. Anyway, he thought he would feel sad to read William's name. He also felt proud. Daisy says, yeah, great. Can I please move to London now? Uh, also, we haven't heard anything about Sophie McShara leaving either. Well, finish out this paragraph. Oh. <laughs> well, never mind. <laughs> right. Uh, okay. Anyway, Mrs. Patmore says Daisy may not be there forever. She's got a taste for London and they'll have to manage without her. Mr. Mason wants to know if that's true because she owns a farm. Right. She could live there for free yeah. if she wants to go somewhere. And Daisy says that she's just teasing. She did think about it, but she's decided she's not going anywhere, at least not until she's passed her exams. Mr. Mason's glad and we are baffled. Yep. This is not on the magnitude of murder prison. No. But it's why did we... Because, like, the character aspect of her being like... I've wasted my life, you know, and are struggling to come to terms with that, I get. But some of the rest of it is just like, what? Why? Like, why would you say you're going to move to London and then suddenly just not? Yeah. There's just not enough. There's just not enough of a reason for her to do either one of I mean, those I guess things. it's one of those things where you're like on vacation someplace and you're like, oh my God, I should like move here. I could do all this stuff. And then you get back home. You're like, eh, I'm settled in. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, Mary walks with Bates. She says she knows what he's thinking because he's only ever allowed to think about one thing. <laughs> Uh, Mary says that Anna won't be convicted or even tried. They have nothing to go on. Bates says nothing that they've shared with them. Uh, they do have like an eyewitness. I wouldn't yeah. say they have nothing to go on. They have means, motive, and opportunity. Mm -hmm. Anyway, Bates says Anna won't be convicted. Isabel asks the Dowager Countess if she should fight for Murty, 
The dowager countess says that Rose's wedding is over. That's when she said she would figure it out. Right. And it's time for action. Isabel asks if the dowager will fight for Karagan. And the dowager countess says that Isabel's holding the winning card as far as Murdy is going. Uh, Murdy's wife is actually dead, not just lost in Hong Kong. Oh, right. Or at sea. Home Alone 5. Lost <laughs> in Hong Kong. Went straight to video. Pretty racist. <laughs> Edith tells Branson that she forgets how she enjoys London. He says she should go more often and get involved in running her paper. Yeah, Edith, go run that paper. Get out of here. Yeah. he says They don't want you anymore. I know. He says she's clever and a good writer and they're lucky to have her, which I believe all of that. And no one else in her family agrees. Yeah. Uh, But Edith says that Mary talks like she's the only one who will miss Branson, but Edith will miss him too. Mrs. Hughes talks to Carson and says, first they locked Bates up when he's innocent. Now they've done the same with Anna in case nobody had figured (laughs) that out. Carson says he has faith in British justice, which freed Bates eventually, not until after a miserable couple of weeks of us having to deal with it. Mm -hmm. Mrs. Hughes says that sorrow seems to shatter the Bateses and them as well. And Carson says to take courage for their safe, they must always travel and... Okay, look, travel and hope, great. Yeah. Uh, we've been traveling in hope that this would be over. <laughs> it's gotten us nowhere. It has only gotten worse. Yeah. So, uh, you know, yeah. Bonvoy fucking on, murder prison. <laughs> I just hope everybody gets exploded. <laughs> like, uh, you know, I'd love to see them try to redeem Anna and Bates next season. Or I guess the Christmas special is coming up. Right, right. But, like... It's just, like, yeah... They clearly are not going to. Oh, my God. Anyway, Lord Grantham tells McGee that he's figured out what he sees in Marigold. She reminds him of Gregson. Yes, he had those terrible bangs <laughs> and that weird look in his eye. Yeah, it's like, that's not fair to Gregson. Anyway, Lord Grantham says ju- to McGee, just tell me if I'm wrong. And McGee says that he is not, uh, but not to tell Edith. Uh, she says that Mary and Tom still don't know. I forgot that Branson doesn't know about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Lord Grantham says very well and that it's an unusual feeling to learn that there is a secret in this house that he is privy to. Which is like, oh my god, you made a joke, Doc! <laughs> no, I know! Doc made a joke! He did. Good job, Doc! <laughs> McGee asks if he'll love his new granddaughter and he thinks he will. And that's the end of the season proper. That's right. It's a bizarre place to leave it. It really is. And this was, you know, I think people detected... Uh, people who had listened to the early instant takes and then listened to our early, like, recaps were like, did something go wrong at yeah. the end of this season? And it did. It did. No, because we had a great run of, like, four episodes yeah. leading up to this that were phenomenal. Agreed. That were, I mean, I don't think you can ever hit as high as the first season and then, you know, the second season running kind of a distant second. But right, like, right. You're never going to hit that, you know, because people on that Pajiba article were complaining like it's this, like, you know, high-blown soap opera. And I'm like, yo, it, it's executed really well. Right. And there was a lot of, there was a lot of interesting character well, stuff that was new. The, and- the stakes back then were as high as the sort of style and production value. Mm-hmm. And now it's just sort of like... Bah, 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 bah. Yeah. Well, and if they would just be willing to adjust the lower stakes and keep them there, you know, like... Isabel and Murdy is fairly low stakes. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, they they like each other and would like to get but married. But I think they played that well. Because right, but that's what I'm then saying. When you bring in those sons, it elevates the stakes because, like, oh, we all thought this was fine, right? But now there's this whole thing. Yeah. Well, and you know, I think it's it's terrible to insult something by saying it's a soap opera. Most things are soap operas. Yeah. Like. Yeah. You know, we all ship. It's all will they, won't they? It's all murder <laughs> prison. You know. Right. Right. But anyway, it. <sighs> 
it just feels like, and really this particular episode, you could have done a lot more really interesting things around the wedding yeah. and Rose and Atticus and they just didn't do those. Yeah. And yeah, instead we got the velvet violin. Oh my God. All right. Look, let's just get to the, the happy <laughs> yeah, awards. Let's do that. Uh, first of all, we have worst decision. And that goes to Susan. Yeah. Pretty much a runaway. Yeah. On, on, Every everything she did was but the worst specifically decision. Specifically, trying to scuttle her daughter's wedding, literally at the wedding. Right. Like they well, have a part in the ceremony of speak now or forever <laughs> hold your peace. Right. Well, but and she tried to do it twice. Once before. Once yeah. during. Like just. Ah, uh, she's a horrible person. Yeah. Next up, we have best evasion. Uh, that goes to the Dowager Countess for evading giving Prince Karagan a straight answer. Yeah. Will there be love? In the Dowager Countess's future, uh, we don't know. We don't. We she are is, excited to see. She has evaded that question. I know. But I think wisely. Oh, she yeah, is, I think. She is not someone to make a snap decision. Absolutely. Worst overbite goes to... Uh, Lady Manville. Yeah, I mean, we kind of tipped our hand oh, we when did. we talked about her pronounced actual physical overbite. Yeah. But my God. Yeah. Uh, again, the Emily Post thing, mm. uh, it doesn't specifically say to not insult the religion <laughs> of the couple getting married, but it's implied. Yeah. Okay. I like, think, oh my God. Yeah. To the only other, you know, half Jewish person. <laughs> right. Good Lord. Yeah. Ridiculous. Yeah. Next up, we have the Gibson Girl Award. Uh, in a surprise upset, that's going to Daisy this episode, wearing yeah. a variety of beautiful dusty pinks. She's really stepped it up fashion-wise yeah. since her early days <laughs> of civilian clothes. Yeah. Uh, but she looks practically cosmopolitan. Yeah, she really does. Uh, and, you know, and we wish she was going to live in London because she could pull it off, but yeah. I guess she's not. I guess not. Uh, next up, we have the Fashion Backwards Award for Backward Fashion, a.k.a. The Backy. And that, we're actually staying downstairs, giving it to Danker. Oh, yeah. Danker looks bad, talks bad, sings bad. Yeah. She's a bad scene. Agreed. We're not Danker fans. No. Uh, she manages to make the standard ladies' made outfit look even worse. It's <laughs> yeah. just blech. Yeah. Her, I mean, her hair. Yeah, her hats. Yeah. Just, like, she and Rosamond should hang out. <laughs> Next up, the cutest baby award. Once again, Sibby, yeah. killing it. Yeah. Uh, what am I, what, are we made of snakes? <laughs> How can we not give it to this beautiful child who is clearly so full of energy and life? Yeah. And, you know, speaks lines. Yeah. And has a point of view on mm. how to play snakes and ladders. Yeah. yeah. We just, we can't, we can't not give it to her. Agreed. Well done. And then, uh, finally, we've got the Maggie Smith scale of Maggie Smith's. And we're going with three Maggie Smiths. Going out uh, pretty even-handed. Pretty even-handed. Yeah, you know, she had a good episode, but she really wasn't at the center of anything. Yeah, she was very and, peripheral. Know, it was definitely not a very quippy uh, encounter with Prince Karagan. Yeah, uh, that was more, you know, actual feelings yeah. involved. Yeah. Uh, which also was great. I mean, yeah. Maggie Smith looks beautiful mm-hmm. in that Lavender Day dress. Yeah. It's actually kind of an update of the one that she wore a lot in the first season. Uh-huh, or that uh-huh. you see a lot of the publicity stills. Yeah. Which inspired Purple Beaded Hat. Right, which right. Was the yes. name of the, the fake, yeah. Yeah. Uh, album. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, and, uh, you know, she had an eagle eye on how many suitcases she had, mm-hmm. which is pretty good. Yeah, and, you know, she had a reasonable contribution to make about the uh, floozy gate. So. Right, yeah. So, yeah, so we'll yeah. see uh, how she holds it down in the Christmas special. Right. Which probably will be split into two. We're guessing. We uh, apologize for that, but I will be traveling this coming weekend, yeah. and it's very <clears throat> difficult to uh, cover a two-hour 
Right. You see how long this takes. Yeah. Well, this is two and a half hours right here. Yeah. Like, come on. Uh, sorry, not sorry. <laughs> right. At any rate, until next time, up, up yours, yours downstairs, luncheon out. Thank you.